Welcome to the podcast that's dedicated to making you a faster cyclist, the Ask a Cycling Coach podcast presented by Trainer Road. I'm Coach Jonathan Lee. We have a different crew with us today. We have Trainer Road in Cannondale's Amber Pierce. Good morning, everyone. We have our CEO, Nate Pearson. Hello. And we have uh, with us as, as well, I guess it'd be Orange Seal Specialized, Alex Wild. Is that correct, Alex? Yeah, that's right. Hey, y'all. Okay. I need to get that one straight. I need to know exactly how to intro you. You know, you're on here enough now. So <laughs> this is a podcast where we answer all the questions you submit and you can do so at trainerroadcom slash podcast. Please do that. It's awesome. Every week we get so many great questions from you. If you have any question on how to get faster, you can just submit it there. It's an easy spot to do it. And you can go and check out trainerroadcom while you're there. Cause it's, a, it's entirely how you get faster and what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about recovery routines. We're going to talk about early season PRs, motivation, tons of different stuff. Rapid fire questions is going to be a good one. But before we do that, if you're joining us on YouTube right now, which you can do so, usually it's every Thursday at 8 a.m. Pacific, but there's a holiday here in the United States tomorrow. So we are a uh, day early now. But you can join us on YouTube and you can like this video if you're on YouTube right now with us. Give it a thumbs up. And that means that more cyclists like you are going to see it because YouTube will serve it to more of them. And that's a good thing. If you're listening on whatever podcast app you're listening on, please rate the show. That's a huge help for us. You can leave five stars. And if we don't deserve five stars, just send us an email and let us know how we can improve. You can do that also at trainerroadcom slash podcast. That's an easy spot to do it. And then finally, down below in the description. Okay, sounds good. If we're having any audio issues on YouTube, by the way, we'll get that worked out. We're going to carry on for the podcast here just the same. Um, if you are for the Successful Athletes podcast as well, if you're joining, you can go down or you can subscribe to that podcast. Go down below in the description. There's a link to it. Last week, we had a podcast <coughs> with Sloan Tilly. She was an athlete who she had like our worst nightmare. She was hit by a car on her bike. And she had to go through a severe, like really, really tough rehab process. Uh, she broke vertebrae in her back, but then also she had to go through three surge or two surgeries on her leg as well, coming through the whole process. Um, but she used train road to recover from that. She went through a whole evolutionary process with herself going through the whole thing. And I learned a ton about rebounding from injury and doing so like in a measured manner. And she managed to raise her FTP by 34 Watts from her peak too during that recovery, which is pretty sweet. And then next week it's going to be with Doug Moore. He is, uh, an athlete. He's get this. He has a really busy job as a project manager. And then on top of that, he also has like a side project that is his responsibility at work that takes up a huge amount of time. And he lives on a farm. So he has to take care of the farm and he has five kids. So with all of that, uh, he can only do a low volume training plan yet. He still did a low volume training plan and he found out how to raise his FTP by 41 Watts throughout all that and use low volume for training for ultra endurance. So pretty sweet. Um, uh, awesome stuff. So, uh, with that, we're going to jump in while, by the way, producer Aaron will be figuring out the audio. No, so you haven't figured it out. Audio's, this <laughs> is awesome. Uh, audio is working cause I checked it, but our names are wrong and I'm Alex wild. <laughs> which is so cool. And, uh, I'm Nate Pearson. <laughs> yeah. How did I get to be Amber? Yeah. You're Amber and John. I'm, uh -huh. so that's just, I'm now the favorite. It's I'm just me. very fun. And we've never done this mix. And this uh, is true. I used to be the second slowest on the podcast, and now I'm the slowest. <laughs> Chad, not <laughs> it's always better to have Chad around for that reason exactly. for Nate, right? That's why we have him. Um, I think you get might well be soon, Chad. My new thing now is just for today, I'm the CEO. Just 
Just putting that out there. <laughs> Just for today. <laughs> oh, Aaron fixed it for everybody. Um, uh, get well soon to Chad, by the way. So yeah. uh, he's getting an MRI on his ankle right now because he thinks that, I don't know if you noticed in the last podcast, but an Easter egg, if you go back and watch on YouTube, you can see Chad like lifting his leg off to the side on his table. And it almost looked like he was doing something strangely suggestive, <laughs> but he was really just trying to elevate his leg, but it was very uncomfortable to see. So, uh, just the same, he was doing that cause he has a really messed up ankle. Uh, hopefully he doesn't need surgery. And I think he figures that out today with some of the tests that he's going through. So I uh, get well soon, Chad, uh, let's go into Ian's question. <clears throat> He says, firstly, I just want to say thanks for the great product. I'm seeing huge gains with the structured training, even though I'm on a low volume plan. He mentions 34 watt gain in 12 weeks. Way to go, Ian. Back in June this year, I rode a lumpy 10 mile time trial and averaged 299 watts for 26-ish minutes on a road bike with, cl with clip-ons. And clip-ons, he's talking about the aero bar extensions that you can just put onto a road bike. After the TT, I set myself a stretch goal of holding 340 watt average for the same TT in 2021 hopefully putting me into the top three on the day. Although I'm only halfway through my training plan, it looks almost certain that I'm going to smash that target long before the event. So my question is one that I've never had to ask before. What should I do if I hit my target way before my event? Should I focus on maintaining that power and look to improve other areas like position or try to keep building with the risk of peaking too early and dropping off before the event? Sorry for the long question. I'm sure I'm the only person using trainer road or I'm not the only person using trainer road outperforming what they could do. Uh, and he says one last comment as he is realizing you can catch your breath at what used to be a hundred 110% of threshold is the most incredible feeling ever uh, on the trainer. That's so true. Right. Nate, like we were just talking about, you're experiencing the opposite right now. Coming yeah, back from the concussion. <laughs> <laughs> Way to bring that up to me. It's so great when it happens. How does it feel when it's the opposite? Uh, the concussion road has not been very good. And yeah, it's, 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 uh, what is it? It's progress is not linear for me. So, right. uh, but for so anyone. this is a really good question from Ian because peaking this, I hear people say this stuff all the time. So let's just define peaking for a second. Peaking is when you do a bunch of strain or volume, like intensity, you're building up your fitness and then you, uh, rest and your fatigue goes down, but your fitness is still high and you get a better performance, but long-term you actually, because you're not training during that week or your volume is reduced, you'll actually get a little bit less fit. So pros, I'm sure uh, Amber and Alex, have, you've peaked right for big events where you do that this very thing, correct? They're, they're, they don't realize that they're on an audio podcast, but they're shaking their head yes. So yes. both of them are doing this. <laughs> um, yes. But that doesn't mean, uh, another. I hear a lot of times is if someone gets a, a power PR, they're like, I've peaked, right? Like it's a peak because I've got a power PR. You don't really know where your, where your peak is. And then the other part that I hear a lot is people saying, um, they might do too much volume and this happened to me and you get tired and you lose motivation and you stop working out that does that's not a peak too that's just like overtraining <laughs> and so i think what ian's saying is he's afraid he is going to overtrain do too much not be able to keep that that stuff going for his uh his big race and i think mm. uh i don't know we'll hear everyone else's opinion but i think ian you're just bad at estimation and you should just keep going like pretty much, right? Uh, usually people are yeah. the opposite. They think their FTP is going to be way higher than it's going to be. But Ian, this is a good, this is a good thing. And I would just keep going until you find your limits. Yeah. Let's talk more about peaking. That's a really interesting point because a lot of the time also I see this when they get a PR, it's almost like you're happy to see the PR, but you're afraid. You're like, yeah. uh Oh, <laughs> my fitness is going to you know, go like, away now. 
Yeah, yeah, it's it's too good. It's too good to be true, and now it's going to go away. But we need to be more analytical about this and think about things from the perspective that you just had, Nate. I do think mentally peaking is a lot easier to un- unintentionally do than physically peaking. Like physically, physically peaking unintentionally is really tough. Like that's like, uh, in like really getting to a peak. That's really hard to do. Um, not a lot of people accidentally train with great precision all the way up until their limits and then maintain that and then back off the vault. You know what I mean? That's like a lot of stuff. However, it is really easy to mentally kind of check out like, and, and it's whether it's because you've been, uh, you feel like you're, you're lacking motivation or whether it's because you're distracted by other things or whether it's because for some reason you just feel derailed and your original goals aren't quite what uh, you had in mind. Like in this case, even if you really had for this time trial, like a set power target that you were really planning on doing and you're visualizing that for your goal event, suddenly you're realizing that's going out the window. In this case, it's going out the window in the best way possible. You're going to be able to do more. But I can also understand uh, where somebody's listening to this and been like, well, I've peaked and I just, I just couldn't train anymore. I just couldn't do it. And it's hard to separate the physical from like the mental exhaustion. Have you experienced that at all, Alex? Like, you know, you, you don't get the luxury of just picking one goal event. Uh, you have to race a lot throughout the year. So I don't know if you've faced something like this where looking back, you may have thought that you peaked or thought that you encountered some sort of barrier, but really it was like a mental peak in the sense that you had mentally checked out. Yeah, I think uh, much to what Nate said, I think when you PR, you trigger something, you know, you're almost like, ah, for sure I peaked, this is the best I've ever done, but it could still be part of the build phase or, you know, anywhere in there. And for me, when I look at this, it's it's the value of having process goals as well. Like I look at this and instead of being like, oh, I'm going to hold 340 watts for this time trial, I'm going to try to be able to hold 95% of FTP for 30 minutes. And whatever that is, when I get to that goal event, the goal is to be able to produce that power. So it, so it kind of stops you from mentally like checking the box. And I feel like that's a lot of it, either going too hard too early and like, you know, you're in December and you've, you know, you're super motivated coming off an of off season. And then by the time February rolls around, you're like, man, I'm toast is one way, but like also just making sure you have goals along the way. Right. Like when you first start out, like I focus a lot on gym and more than on the bike. Like I want to try to get back to X amount in the gym or whatever. And then from there it's like, okay, I want to be able to do this and focus more on like, what the goal of that build is and and what process can I achieve through that so that I kind of avoid that mental burnout. Mm. Amber, for you with a long career in road racing and then add on swimming into this, (laughs) you had a long career as a professional athlete. I think a lot of people too, they, they misunderstand peaking because you don't have a lot of reps with peaking. Like, uh, you see this in particular with triathlon and these big ultra endurance events where a lot of athletes, they may be brand new to structured training, but they're doing like a half Ironman or something like that. And they get into a situation where they're like, okay, I need to taper because I need to peak that sort of a thing. But in many cases, you know, so little about yourself that it's really hard to effectively reach that peak. And then it also changes over time. Like what worked once to get you to a true peak doesn't work. Did you notice that evolving over your career too, where you had to like evolve and switch how you viewed peaking 
Yeah, for sure. And it, it's a, it's an art form. There's a lot of trial and error to it. And it, it can be really uncomfortable because when you're in that process where you're trying to dump the fatigue, so you're bringing your volume down, it's not, it's disruptive to routine. It, it can feel like you're doing a lot less than you should be. And so there's a, there's a, a discomfort psychologically with it, which, um, is, is another thing to learn how to manage and another thing to learn about yourself but it's an important process because you don't want to go into your goal event being really, really tired. Like you need to build up that fatigue in order to get the training adaptations that you want to gain the fitness and be able to have the, the capacity to, to nail the target power output that you want or nail your average speed or nail whatever it is that your goal is. Um, but you don't, you can't bring that fatigue with you into the event. So it is, it is a tough process and you're evolving as a person and as an athlete, every year. And so even what worked in a previous season might not work in a current season. So I think it's really important to just approach this again, like with a, I'll say it again, the curiosity and enthusiasm, right? Like how cool that you are already capable of putting out the power target that you had envisioned for yourself. I mean, keep going, man. Like who knows what you could do? I think, I think that's really exciting. And you're, you're breaking new ground in terms of learning about yourself as an athlete right here, which is super cool. I also, yeah. uh, you said something really important about it being a art and not a science and mm. completely like, I want to model inside of Trina road, the exact way to make you your biggest peak, but it changes like based on how fit you are, how much load you've done. And it's not just, I, I'm people are saying CTL, ATL, TSB, the, the, there's probably a lot of people that understand that, but then you see it and then people are always like, well, I raised best on negative 40 TSB and I'm, mm. but then this time I was best at plus 10 and it's all over the board, but it's different for the individual. And I'd like to get enough stuff in where we can then predict that. But like Amber and uh, Alex, I guess, Jonathan, you probably, yeah, you haven't done as much as that, right? For people. <laughs> How many times though have you done the exact same kind of like protocol to peak and your results for how much you jump up is different? Like, is it, it's not always, Alex, you're the most analytical. So you probably play, play uh, like you more than I am. Do you get different results based on like shedding fatigue and stuff for big races? Yeah, we've played around, like you were saying, with different levels of fatigue, like the number within training peaks. Um, and I go in a little better if I'm kind of, like rev the engine, I call it like not completely taper. Like I still need a little bit of intensity in there. We found that just trimming the volume. So if I'm doing like four sets of intervals, I do two sets instead on Tuesday. And so I still have a little bit of intensity in there and that tends to work best for me. But like Amber said, it's, it's a moving target and something that I want to impress on people is peaks are great, but I feel like there's this misconception that you can't perform unless you're peaking. Um, mm. You could never race 12 races a year if that weren't the case. I would just never sign up for them. <laughs> um, it's definitely, you can have your A races. That's great, you know, like national championships or, you know, whatever it is for you, this TT for Ian. But you can still race just fine without peaking. So, like, don't let it stop you from getting out there. And, like, the cool thing with Ian's question that I was just thinking about was that if he's doing 340 watts average, he no longer has to do 26 minutes, hopefully. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's a great so, yeah. point. So it's like the faster you get, the lower that becomes. And it's kind of like this optimization chart of like time versus time to exhaustion. So it's like trying to find yeah. like, okay, I can do X watts for 16 minutes. Could I get to the finish line in 16 minutes? Okay, probably not. Okay, 21 minutes, I can do this. Oh, sweet. Like I could cut five minutes off my time. 
Like, honestly, that's why I think amateurs are, are much fitter than I am is like, they're doing the same course for two hours at the same ex- exact, like <laughs> yeah, perceived right. exertion. Yeah. Like I'm just dying to get to the finish line. <laughs> the only reason I go quicker is like, okay, that finish line is there faster, but like get it over with <laughs> Ironman two, eight hour yeah. athletes versus 15 hour athletes. Like, yeah, and we were even talking about this with Cape Epic. Like Nate was saying, like the stages for for amateurs are completely different, and it's like that's mind blowing. Like six, seven hour days back to back to back. Like the only reason I think Cape Epic is manageable is because I'm thinking in my head three to four hours a day, like <laughs> yeah. seven to eight hours a day. Like it cuts down everything else. So it's yeah, I think it's cool to to think the faster you get, the less time you have to be on course. So trying to find that optimization of how many watts I have to put out for how many minutes. This is really like the unique tie-in with time trial training in particular with structured training. It's really cool because you're, when we've talked about process versus outcome, but we can also say like training versus performance uh, outcomes that you're really going for and that you're targeting. With time trialing, you can get like really specific with that. Do you want to go into that a little bit more, Amber? Sorry for kind of stepping on your toes at that point, but I feel like it's a really cool tie-in that you can do with time trial uh, with time trials. So yeah, no, I think not stepping on toes at all. I think this is a really important distinction to make and, and a way of thinking about it, right? Because you can think about uh, outcome goals versus process goals. That's kind of one way of looking at this. And and your power output, your capacity for producing power is an outcome, right? It's a byproduct of the process that you've been engaged in, the process of consistently showing up and getting the work done. So you're reaping the benefits of that consistency, which is your process, and the outcome goal, which is your, your, your power capacity, right? But the same goes for execution on event day. So there's training outcomes, and then there's the performance outcomes, the actual execution of the event on the day. And that's, that's a little bit different, right? So yes, you've got the capacity to produce the power now. How are you going to execute on race day? And that's, that's a little bit of a different question. They're related, obviously, but mm-hmm. that's another thing to think about is, okay, you can produce this power in training. How well are you going to be able to produce this power in racing, and I think by the time you get to your goal event, given where you are, where you are now, you're going to be well beyond where you are this moment. But I think it's important to consider that the execution itself on event day has a whole different set of process goals, you know, involved there, and that's another way of thinking about it. So it's not just about getting to the point where you can produce the power. What you really want to do because you're a competitor is get out there in the competitive arena and test yourself against your fellow competitors, and that's not just about power. Mm. Ian, I, I have, think there's like, oh, sorry. Okay. Ahead, I just want to tell Ian, these are the mistakes that I've made over and over and over again. And here's the things that you shouldn't do at the moment. One would be, well, I'm this strong. What if I did more volume, right? <laughs> like if I just did a little bit more or the training. So don't do, I wouldn't, if, if it's going well and you're on, you're, you're already past your goal. I would not change anything on the overall volume Two, you could say, well, and maybe it's a hilly time trial. What if I lost a little bit of weight now too, right? Because obviously the training is going well, so I'll just eat a little bit less and then I'll try to optimize both sides of the equation. I wouldn't do that. Uh, in time trial, I would not now, I've done this too, is be like, well, if I went, if I dropped just a little bit, right? If I took a spacer out, I could like save five watts and then I would be like, ooh, I could be top five. So I'm gonna change that too. I would not change anything in your position. And then the final one is, uh, on the on the rest weeks, you could be like, I'm going pretty well. I'm going to like lift some extra weights or do a little bit of something extra, <laughs> and not respect your recovery weeks. I basically what I would do is be 
very consistent with what you're doing and then listen to feel and err on the side of two less than two more. And um, I hope they cut this clip out and just send it just to me. <laughs> and I'll just play it like daily. It's like good morning. Uh, wise ap- morning wise Nate from the past. <laughs> I, I will not do more. I will do less and I will listen to my body. I will not do more. I will do less and I will listen to my body. Uh, that would Dear be really future cool. self, please don't make these mistakes again. <laughs> yes, it. exactly. Over and over we, and over. We would all next time, from something like ooh, that. What they can do is they can cut out me because like six months from now, I'll be like, Okay, here's what you don't do, like for like Dave Epic and stuff. And they'll just put it back to back to back and you'll see me age and my hair will get gray. Just years of years of years. But I do this so that other people can learn. Um, yeah. yeah. The, one last point that I wanted to make on this one too is um, the goals you set are really important and setting the right ones are really important. Having them <coughs> process oriented, I feel like are just, are, are, it's, it's a good insurance plan. Because if you have an outcome goal that's set up like this, where it's basically like, I just need to do this much wattage for this, well, I'm going to blow it out of the water. There is a risk of kind of like reaching complacency. And I've seen this in myself where I get to a spot where like my goal was to win a race at this, you know, whether it was this series or something like that. And I win that race. But since I didn't have any bigger goals beyond that, or I didn't have any process goals that I was stuck to, suddenly I was like, Eh, I don't have to train that much because I just won that. So mm-hmm. I'm not going to train. I'm just going to have fun on the bike. I'll chase some Strava KOMs. I'll just, you know, maybe find more races to do. And you'd suddenly get to a point where you've, you've lost your North star and you aren't really moving up into the right. Like you want to instead, what you're doing is you're moving flat at best, just straight to the right, or you end up dropping down. So there's, there's risk of like complacency and it doesn't, it isn't, your fault necessarily for in terms of what you're doing at that time. It really just comes down to which goals you set in the past. And if they were the right sort of goals that would grow with you rather than just bring you to a certain point and then drop you off and give you no benefit. So it really is important to have those sort of goals. And something I really liked with that Alex, you pointed out there was instead of a specific power target, you could even make something the more process oriented in terms of on the day for execution with just making a percentage of FTP. And that's also like on the flip side, let's say we're not liking it and we aren't in this crazy fortunate position to be like, I'm way too fast. I don't know what to do now. <laughs> in that case, a lot of us listening to this are like, I got sick or, and I couldn't train and I couldn't hit, you know, hit my marks or something is holding you back from being where you thought you were going to be. And in that case, once again, try to have some sort of way to execute that you can manage regardless of what happens leading up to it. And if you can stick to that and have that as a motivator, it's a, it's a great goal. So really good tip, Alex. That was, that was an awesome one. So, uh, Matthew's question. He says, I haven't seen much on the podcast and forum on juniors. Uh, he says, we signed up my middle school age daughter at the start of the year to help her reach some racing goals and results have been exceptional. My normal work schedule is regularly 48 to 96 consecutive hours. So our riding time is really consistent and depends on me being really inconsistent, forgive me, and depends on me being physically present with trainer road. I can see, I can see her workouts and we can chat or text about it afterward. And while being able to provide a good routine for her, my concern is that I'm not using the platform to its max potential. And on the other side, she's so young, I don't want to create burnout. And that's really the point that we want to focus on with this question right there at the end is, is the burnout aspect of things. So he says, would you mind discussing strategies for successful training with kids and juniors? How do we as parents and coaches get the most out of, forgive me, their time on the app 
And are there any training pitfalls to watch out for compared to an average adult trainer road user? So we're going to try really hard to speak from our own experiences here instead of telling parents how to parent, because we all know nobody likes to be told how to parent their kids. Um, so, um, instead what we'll try to do is try to talk about, um, about our experiences, but maybe the first thing to just to cover really quickly, some things with the app, um, it might be like the better thing. And this is a common thread throughout, right, Nate, but keep things fun. Um, if your child's like, I want to do disaster every day, um, <laughs> you have wisdom as a parent to know that that might not be a good idea, even though they have all the enthusiasm in the world. And, and I experienced this a lot with my son. He has the enthusiasm to do 10,000 things, but I have to look at it and say, okay, as an adult, even though I totally want to see him fulfilled and happy and doing all these things, you know, it's, it's, it's a tough balance for sure. Yeah. Um, I want to, uh, yeah, go ahead, Nate. I'm going to jump just a little bit in the doc because I just want to say this part because it's very important. So there's a famous book called uh, Training Periodization written by Bompa. I think that's how you say it, Bompa, his name. But his advice is, uh, I'm not giving advice, I'm just saying his advice, is you start general in team sports as a kid. And then as they get older and their desire increases, you go more to like a solo sport. So they might play soccer when they're young. And then if they want to get more into swimming or... Uh, running or something like that where like track and field where it's a solo sport that can happen and that leads to less when in my experience what i've seen and i actually was right uh i was in a car ride with a high school track coach who got like state champions is some not all programs do this but i think the bad ones the bad and good at the same time what they do is they throw tons of volume at everybody and they see who sticks against the wall so for like running, they're going to like, we're doing 60, 70, 80 mile weeks. And whoever is going to be able to handle that is now going to automatically be a state champion. But you leave this, this wash, this wake of like juniors who hate running and will never run for the rest of their life, who get stress fractures, uh, develop like eating disorders because they're not as fast as the other people. It's not trained like individually. It's just trying to see who is the diamond. Uh, I think out of all of us, Amber, you are obviously the the biggest athlete as a kid. Did that happen in swimming too? Did you ever see that? Yeah, I was going to just say that exactly that. I think it, swimming in particular, uh, cause it requires such a huge time commitment. This is a real potential pitfall. And I, I did see this happen when I was growing up, but I was really lucky that I was in a program that understood this and really took their time with their athletes. So, um, and what I've come to believe, you know, after years of being in sport and seeing a lot of people come into the sport, fall in love with it, you know, maybe even be really talented and then burn out as a result of exactly this. As coaches, it's really the coach's job to teach skills of resilience, not to test kids to see who already has it. And I think that's a huge misconception is that you're either born with this toughness or not. It's that is baloney. This is a skill that you can learn. It's a skill that anyone can learn. And coaches' jobs are to cultivate, develop, and teach these skills, not to, you know, throw everything against the wall and see what sticks. That's just, it's, there's so much, um, it, it, it causes so much devastation, honestly. And, and you could be developing a, a lifelong love of sport, of movement, of, of good relationship with your body, all of those things go out the window when you do that. So I, I was really fortunate in the sense that the program that I was in was very much about quantity over quality. They focused on process. So 
I, I fell in love with a process and that enabled me to have really sustainable long-term motivation for sport in general. I mean, look at me, I'm, I'm still here, <laughs> but, <laughs> and that doesn't have to be the goal, but the nice thing about fo- focusing on process is that's also transferable to everything else in life. So, um, I, that was something that worked really, really well for me as a kid. And I, I saw other programs where they were just throwing tons of what we called junk miles in the pool at the time at, at, at swimmers at very young ages. And yeah, it burned them out when it didn't necessarily need to. And those very swimmers could have learned those skills of resilience that, that could have learned how to engage in and find joy in process. Um, and they never got the chance. And I think that that's just tragedy. Yeah. And it's so true. Like you're still here, but like, I'm still here too. And Mm -hmm. it's, it's there's so honestly, how many kids in these programs are going to be pro athletes? Probably not many. And right. mm-hmm. uh, the ones that do have the genetics, because it is, there's a certain, you have to have a certain type of genetics. You can't just have anybody be a pro athlete. So you do the genetics and then they have to have the desire and the grit. And uh, if you go for the more long-term, the slow, the people, the, the kids that do have the desire and the grit, I think will, and the genetics, they will get there if they learn the resili- resilience, right? And then they have that desire and they will automatically get there. They don't need someone to do it. But on the opposite, you see people who are fantastic pedigree, uh, VO2 max and like uh, genetics. And then at 21, they drop out of the sport because they hate it because they've just been pushed their whole life as hard as possible. And they have all this, this stuff. So with my kids, uh, this, with my kids, uh, I don't think they're going to be pro athletes. But I, I just support them, and I would like to make them they, they don't burn out or develop any unhealthy habits. But I was, uh, when I was with, uh, in Moab with Lee McCormick, he was talking how he taught the, uh, it was like a dev program, and he said all he did was he focused on skills, being smooth, and fun. He said he never once mentioned winning a race, but they won almost all of the races. So I want to say this, this aspect of like, you can still be competitive and be awesome. And we talked a little bit about choking too. These kids are focusing on the process, right? They're like, Ooh, here's a hole, a sideways hole. Let's get some tasty gnar in here. Ooh, I got pitted. Right. And they come out and that's what they're thinking rather than like, Lee says we have to win. Lee says we have to win. Lee says we have to win. That's in their head. And they, they just, they're smooth over the course and they, they're really fast. And I think if you can have people develop that way, then you get like that competitor that Amber is and the genetics, then they're like, ooh, they're having fun while they're doing it. Every time they ride their bike, they're having fun, right? And then it goes up, 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 and then you get an amber. Or an Alex. Yeah. Sorry, Alex. When I forgot I, you're when here. I, when I was, <laughs> I was gonna so say quiet. from a mountain, mountain biking point of view, that's totally how I approach any juniors who ask for advice. Cause we have that advantage that there is the descending aspect, right? For mountain biking, it's like getting up the hill is just half or less of the race. So it's like, focusing on skills and things that they can see is super fun, whether it's like learning how to wheelie or, you know, learning how to jump a gap or, you know, riding that rock garden. It's like there are goals that aren't so much fitness oriented. And I guess my not issue, but I think there's a disposition to trying to find the next pro athlete in all sports. And it's like cycling is unique. I feel like in the fact that people cycle long after they, tried to go pro or whatever you know it's like it's a lifelong sport where it's like most of the people that watch basketball i would argue don't play basketball so it's like 
I think there's a longevity aspect here and just making sure the kids having fun. It's like if they want vo- if they want some structure in there, I think that's great, you know, but to Jonathan's point, obviously I can't speak to having kids, but I think just throwing in, you know, a little bit of structure maybe once a week, you know. So they're looking forward to it every Saturday like, "Oh, sweet, I nailed the trails. Now I get to try this workout," which is another aspect of it, but never making the goal to win, making the goal to have fun and enjoy it and like check in with them, you know. It's like, "Are you still enjoying riding your bike?" And it's like it sometimes it takes someone asking you that about something to realize like, "Nope, it's just my routine." Hmm. Yeah. It also depends on the age, right? It's different if it's a 12-year-old versus an 18-year-old. An 18-year-old, they might be totally focused on winning, right? And that is yeah. their desire, and they're old enough to handle that. And uh, But a 12-year-old might be focused more on fun, and it's a it's an evolution inside of that. Uh, the other thing, yeah. I forgot, sorry, concussion. Go, John. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, one, I, when I was a NICA coach for a composite team in our <laughs> local area, we started out with the kids, and I was like, what do you want to do more of for training? Do you want to ride and go outside, do skills, that sort of stuff, or do interval training? And they were like, interval training, we want to get faster. And they knew, you know, that I was with trainer road and everything else. And I was like, okay, like, that's like, you know, if we're going to do that, that's a lot of commitment, that sort of thing. Tried to explain it before. And they're like, let's do it. Let's do it. And it was after like week two, they were like, can we just go outside and ride? Like, <laughs> so, <laughs> cause they were like, this is really hard work. Just, you know, doing these intervals. And it really got to a point where I realized in that moment, because I was totally green as a coach for kids, uh, that sometimes kids have all the enthusiasm in the world to do something, and you have to give them room to be able to explore that enthusiasm. But you can't be so adhered to it that you're like, well, you're stuck to it now. (laughs) You know, you're just going to keep going with this. And then also you can't lose your own perspective, because it's easy in that scenario. Like, let's say you're you know, you get into a situation where the kid really like the starts interval training, sees a lot of improvement, everything else. There's a temptation to definitely let it go too far. But what we did as NICA coaches, it was, it was really fun with the group is instead, like I thought, well, how can we like do intervals, but do so in a totally sneaky way? So instead what we would do is we had relays where basically like everyone had a different leg on a team and we'd have a short route that we would do. And like everyone would sit there and wait and then it would make it so that you would have to do like, we would do like three laps on the relay course and everyone would like rotate their position or something. We do fun things like, um, you'd have to find something that would be hidden at a specific trailhead and like, you know, three different spots, they'd go and find those things and they'd have to bring them back or meet up with other teams. There's like, there's so many things that as an adult, we don't have time to do because we're so time constrained with the different responsibilities we have. But as a kid, you do have time to do that. And for all of us, it would make training a whole lot more fun too. It does It does when we're doing those sort of things. So if we can have the foresight to be like, hey, like maybe we can do something extra special and extra fun uh, for junior athletes, I think that's a key thing. And I know, Alex, you raced in NICA and, and so you went through that whole process of keeping it fun. Amber, I, I'm sure that through swimming and everything else, uh, did they integrate games like that to keep it fun? Did they do that sort of a thing? Sharks and minnows. Yeah. Sharks and minnows. Sharks and minnows. Um, even yeah. I remember I had this wonderful assistant coach in college and he brought out like those toy torpedoes that you throw around under the water. I don't know if anybody's seen there, but they are a <laughs> those lot of things fun. They're so rad. They're so rad. And he brought them to work out one time and he's like, all right guys, just like play around these. And we we're like, really? And 
but he made a really good point, which was when you play, you learn because your brain is open and receptive. Mm. And by playing around with these underwater torpedoes, we were watch we actually learned how the weight distribution, the, the balance of gravity and buoyancy could actually create acceleration through the water. And it actually helped us improve our streamlines because you can manipulate the buoyancy of your torso with your lungs and all the air in them with the weight of your, uh, your legs and the, and the lower half of your body to create acceleration mind blown. But you don't really think about that unless like the fact that we were just playing around with these toys mm -hmm. in the water, it get, it opened us up and made us more receptive to like, Oh wow, check out how that thing moves. Can I move like that too? And making it into a game actually made it easier to learn some cool new concepts like that. And again, so much less stress, so much more fun, so much more engaging. Um, so there's a lot that you can do around that for sure. The one last yeah. thing I remember I was going to say, it's based on what Alex <laughs> said, is that uh, the the gift that you can give your child is a lifelong sport and hobby, something that they can enjoy. Because cycling is so unique that people do it in their 70s, right? They can do it their whole time. Uh, although it is ex you know relative expensive to something like running, it is so much better on the joints for long-term health. Mm -hmm. And it's really is like, it's a gift of health, right? Cause that's what cycling is. We're, we don't talk about that a lot on the podcast, but we are, we are increasing our longevity by, as long as we don't do this, like crash on the mountain bike, but uh, <laughs> the amount of time you're gonna live because your cardiovascular system, your body composition, like you're fighting off all these, uh, uh, these like cancers and all that sort of stuff by cycling. And if like, what a great gift to your, to your kid, right? Where the opposite would be, mm -hmm. you burn them out from any sport, and they don't want to do any sport for the rest of their life, which we see. Mm -hmm. You probably have some some friends who did either D1 college or really competitive high school, and they will never work. They don't ever want to see a gym in the rest of their life because they had such a bad experience. Yeah, I think another. One, oh, sorry. Go ahead, Jonathan. I, yeah, I just wanted to hit on motivation as kind of being that very thing because so I face this personally, like a lot of people, I get messages on my Instagram all the time whenever I have like a video of Simon and I riding our bikes around, they're like, oh, he's going to be so fast or, <laughs> oh, he's, you know what I mean? That's like what everybody says because uh, he started riding bikes and he was really young, but he doesn't have any goals like he doesn't even really like riding bikes that much it's legos are like way cooler than riding bikes you <laughs> know like for him Highway <laughs> yeah yeah he's got yeah. like it on his wall national 2032 yeah. <laughs> exactly yeah i got a stopwatch i pull him out yeah. of bed and yeah, yeah. he's got a taper um, plan i'm in a peak yeah <laughs> <laughs> don't peak too soon yeah. um but but it's it's like um the motivation for him isn't there right and don't get me wrong, as like a dad, I wish, and as a coach, you could find yourself in the same situation. You could wish that all your athletes had just peak motivation all the time, but that's not real. Like, and, and you can't force that upon somebody for sure in a coaching athlete scenario, certainly of, of course, also in the parenting thing. It, like that, that's the hard thing, right? With motivation, Amber, is because you are teaching kids when you're in, they're in a coaching, when they're in a coach scenario, but are you actually like teaching them motivation and you being an athlete that was coached for so long, I'm sure you have some thoughts on that and motivation itself and like those <laughs> athletic levels. I have a lot of thoughts on this, <laughs> but don't worry. Yeah. I'm not going to do a deep dive tonight or today. <laughs> um, no, but I, I exactly that. And this dovetails really nicely with what Nate was saying. I think another lifelong gift that really is transferable to everything outside of a sport is to learning how to be a steward of your own motivation. And this is something that, 
plays out in the psychological research, which is motivation is intrinsic. It is innate. We all have an inherent sense of motivation. What ends up happening is not that you lose motivation. It's that we, we impose barriers to motivation upon ourselves or others impose those barriers upon us. And some of that is cultural. Some of that is relational, but it's less about creating motivation and more about removing barriers to motivation. And this was something that my early coaches um, in, in middle school and high school really did a wonderful job of, was help me identify motivational sticking points. And they supported me in, in learning how to steward my own natural motivational flow. So they weren't there to push me. They weren't there to motivate me. And likewise, you know, it, it's funny. I got up at four in the morning to do morning practices for swimming when I was in high school. And I really loved it. Like, and my parents never pushed me to go. They never forced me to go. In fact, if, if anything, they would be like, are really like, are you sure you don't want to sleep in it's finals <laughs> week? And I'd be like, no, man, are you kidding? If I don't get my workout in, I'm not going to be able to focus. I loved it. And there was no one pushing me. And, and instead of, the, I think there's a sense that you know, people who are really motivated, you know, they're really pushing themselves. No, it, it's allowing, it's not pushing, it's allowing, it's removing barriers. And uh, like, I'll tell the story of, of my parents and my experience. Like my parents were wonderful. They did, they did come to all the swim meets, you know, they volunteered to do timing and all of that, but it didn't matter. It, my mom, my mom reflects back on it and she's like, yeah, if you finished a race, if you were smiling, I was smiling. And if you weren't smiling, I just gave you a hug. Like there was no, like there was no pushing, there was no pressure, no nothing. And, um, you know, now looking back, I, my dad actually has, has pages and pages and pages of all of my race results. And I didn't even know it at the time because they were just there for me. They were just there to support my own motivation, my own process. They let me lead. And I think that that made all the difference in the world. Um, and, and I think I encourage everybody listening to think in terms of your motivation, not as something that you need to build up or produce. It's there. It's more about peeling back the layers. Like what are the things that are are preventing you from tapping into your natural motivation. Those are the things that you focus on removing barriers as opposed to trying to build that up. Yeah. That's like, yeah, great. great I, we're all going to say, sorry, we're all talking at the same time. Um, <laughs> the, a key there is like, do your parents come and watch you? Cause I think if per the kid, it is different. Um, I think my parents listen, oh, but yeah. they didn't really watch many of my sports. They just dropped me off. And I love that. That allowed me just to do my thing without anybody nitpicking me or watching me. But other kids are like, they feel so good when their parents are watching. So I want to just, mm -hmm. John, did you did you mm -hmm. have your parents go and did they like, or did you like it? Yeah, between motocross and ski racing, I raced like a lot, right? That was always what I was doing. And, and my, so my dad in particular was always, always there. And it's, it's, it's really, uh, like a special relationship and a bond that we have is over like my competition and my racing. My dad's like my, uh, what, what's the guy from Rocky, uh, the, the, the little, the guy in the yeah. corner, so to speak. Like, I mean, that's my dad. He's in my corner at all times. And he was really good with that. I can't ever remember a single time when my dad was trying to force motivation upon me. Uh, he would try to set the scene for me to be able to peel layers back he would, and he would do so in a way that was like very much putting it in my wheelhouse. He was always really great too at 
seeing like what, how he could, he's always like searching for ways to make himself even more useful. And, and when he's in those scenarios and he is always really good at helping me run through a, like a pre-race check and routine and helping with that sort of stuff. He was never pressuring. I was really fortunate for that motocross in particular because of the huge high investment. And then I think also high risk and the stress that comes with that for a parent. It's known for having very intense parents <laughs> that are, you know, like the, the, the pop Warner Papa sort of a thing taken to the next level because your child's also in a life and death scenario. And it's also causing you to mortgage your house because <laughs> it's so expensive. So, uh, it's a, it's a bad mix. And, uh, my, I just, yeah, just personally, cause I know my dad's watching right now. Thank you, dad. Uh, you were an incredible example for that. And he still is. And, and it's really special cause he still calls me, uh, after a race and he apologizes cause he wasn't there at my race, even if it's, you know, in Canada or something. <laughs> um, and he always asks me how it goes. He sends me text messages beforehand every time to like, it's just I, like, it's a really special bond. And I know because it's not like my dad is this endless fountain of patience, right? He's, he's a human. And I'm sure that there were plenty of times where he fought back against like, you know, the, the, the urge to push me harder, uh, maybe. Um, but he, he was a great example for that. So I'm really, I'm really grateful for it. Alex, how about you? I, I mean, I know that you growing up, you had a close relationship with your mom and, uh, also your brother too, uh, in, in that case. Yeah, um, I think I just lost audio. Uh, yeah, we can hear you. <laughs> hold on one second. Let's go with Amber. Amber, did your parents, yeah, like, yeah. you must have done a lot. They didn't fly yeah, to Europe well, for all your races, right? I, there we go. I know my mom's listening, too, and my dad might be listening, so I want to thank you guys, too, because you guys were awesome. You were just, you were there for me, you were interested, you showed me that you cared, but you never pushed or got in the way, or, I mean, I just, I honestly, like, I couldn't have asked for better parents growing up like that. I mean, just really, really awesome. Yeah. And it instilled, it helped me instill this lifelong appreciation for, for sport and self-discovery. Yeah. Mm. I was going to say, back. yeah, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, uh, John's right. I was really close to my mom. My dad had a somewhat absent role in my life. So I think she struggled playing both sides of the fence, so to speak. She wanted to be supportive, which came very natural to her, but she also saw that when I finished a race and I didn't want to finish where I was, and she did like the, it's great, I still love you, 15th is awesome, blah, blah, blah. She saw my competitive side kick out, and I'd be like, Mom, like, what are you congratulating me for? This is nothing, like, you know? <laughs> and she would struggle with that, right? Because she, she, she wanted to be everything. And Sorry. My dad passed away in April, so... It was a little oh. difficult for her to kind of play both sides of that sport. So thanks, Mom. Oh. I'm gonna cry. So I'm glad a great we get podcast. I know, jeez. Yeah. It's like a, I know it's just bikes, but it's really like it's a cool thing to have something that's in like a common vein with your kid. And um just a really special thing. So um Thanks for sharing that, Alex. And yeah. thanks, Alex's mom, for being an absolute hero. So appreciate that. Um, let's go into Cody's question, because this one has absolutely probably zero depth to it. So I apologize <laughs> for the whiplash we're going to hit here. Um, but Cody says, um, could you guys shed some light on how to find the perfect cleat position? Because I'm having trouble getting my cleat position dialed as I just changed my uh, just changed. And he says in the previous one wore out. 
says, however, I could never find the perfect position where I felt symmetrical on both legs, could perform a smooth pedal stroke, felt comfortable and had equal muscle activation throughout my whole leg. Man, Cody, you are strict with yourself and your poor legs. Um, <laughs> he says, this is a big one for me as I usually feel all the burn in my vastus medialis. And for some reason, I feel that if I could shift the load to other parts of my legs, such as the parts of my quad, hamstrings and glutes, I'd be more efficiently, uh, be more efficient on the bike and be able to put out more power. And he also asked, could you also touch on how to change your cleats and set them up in the same position as before? I'm particularly sensitive to cleat position and just millimeters that throw me off and make me feel uncomfortable. Thanks to the podcast guys really enjoy it and keep it up. So the first thing that comes to mind with this is, uh, I've been in this person's shoes, Cody, I've felt like you before. And now I don't feel like you before. You're in a yeah. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> that was a good joke, yeah, Nate. I like that one. <laughs> um, Nate's definitely a dad. Um, but with this one, the, the, when I felt this way, I was also going through like constant recurring knee injuries and it was really tough and it was super demotivating. I was afraid of getting on my bike because I knew that there was such a high probability that I was going to get hurt and I was doing nothing off the bike to be able to work on my mobility and to work on my strength and making my body more functional. And as a result, cleat position is super consequential. If you look at it, it's kind of like you're, you're like a frail and stiff object. And when you apply any sort of strain to that, obviously it's not going to be able to operate very well or fluidly. So then any small change of a few millimeters in a cleat is really going to throw you off. But fast forward to now, and because of all the PT I'm doing, and because I'm keeping up on that, I'm doing strength training programs, everything else. As a result, I, it's cool. Like I've even experimented plus or minus like half an inch in saddle height, something I would have never done before, but I've been able to experiment with it and not fear the like, you know, if this goes wrong, I'm just going to fall off a cliff with injury and I won't be able to train. So we're going to get into like, you know, cleat position and some tips and everything else like that. But just my first bit of advice, Cody, is instead of looking at the cleat, like it needs to move, your body needs to move. So since your body needs to move, it's a really good idea to make it capable of moving. And that isn't just pedaling your bike that comes with PT that comes with everything else. And one of the things I could recommend is if you go onto the trainer road forum and ask people what they've done to become more mobile, that sort of a thing, that would be a great thing to do. Cause you'll get really helpful uh, tips. It's a fantastic place, a positive place on the internet. Um, and then in addition to that, I also have a thread on the forum all about what I've done to address knee issues but I feel like a lot of it was all around opening up hips and mobility throughout your whole posterior chain and legs. So that will also help with this scenario with the cleats. So with all that, that's what I would say there. But Nate, uh, what, what are your thoughts on this? Cause I know you've, you've mentioned this on the podcast before, but you went through like some expensive fits and went through that whole process as well. Um, it's, going through it. Okay. So this is my opinion, but I feel like every time I get new shoes and put new cleats on, it feels weird at first, no matter what. And you, <laughs> you can get in that thing where you just keep tweaking to try to find it. But also, this is like when they change Facebook. When they first change, everyone's like, this is the worst thing ever. And then <laughs> it goes like two years and they change Facebook again. Everyone's like, the last one was so good. Why do you change it? And what I think people do is it's the change that you feel. And until you give it, you, like you'll get used to it and it will feel really good. And I am school of thought that if you're not getting injured. Uh, I wouldn't spend a bunch of time on trying to tweak it and get like this muscle to be more activated than this muscle. I don't know of any, please send it to me. I don't know any research where they will 
you know, move something one millimeter this way or that way, and you gain like five watts because now your glutes are firing. And I know fitters are probably <laughs> like, this is a thing fitters say all the time. And people will say this to me like on the road, like your position, blah, blah, blah. This isn't firing if you do this and if you do that. And oftentimes too, I just had this with a coach in Sacramento tell me this. Um, they will say opposite advice of each other. They're like, if your saddle's too low, your your glutes won't fire. And then they say, if your saddle's too high, your glutes won't fire. Or like, you need your, you know, you need to do this. Right. Um, so I, I wouldn't. It can be. Uh, I would not stress about this in general. There's so many other things to stress about inside of cycling, and this isn't the one. And then the final thing is, you have like most cleats have some float left and right. So as long as you, mm. if you're that like the direction doesn't matter so much and then especially if you're on speed plane you can have a lot of float and then the the fore and aft there's marks on the shoes just put them somewhere and go and i bet you're okay and i bet if i snuck in and moved your cleat one millimeter you might feel something right afterwards but you're not gonna like have your ftp drop by 10 watts by me doing this right <laughs> it's your it's your yeah. it's your aerobic system that's pushing it yeah. Switching cleats too from shoe to shoe can be kind of like a complex thing uh, to keep them all straight. Um, Alex, I know you bounce back and forth between road and mountain bike and you've done that. Do you do anything to keep your cleat uh, position mounting consistent when you're doing that? Yeah. Uh, I run mountain shoes on 95% of my bikes, pretty much only a road bike that I'm, I'm running road cleats. Um, I will try and I, since mountain biking is my like primary, I will match my like the BB position and everything from my mountain bike sagged obviously to my road bike. So like the offset and everything, and the cleats. What I'll do is where the spindle is. I'll try to match. It's easiest to grab like the fifth metatarsal head and then the big toe bone because they're the easiest to feel through your shoe and kind of those distances from the spindle is kind of a, a starting point um and it, i'm lucky enough to work with retool out of boulder um and i've gotten fits from todd carver so i haven't ever had the issue that after a fit i feel weird so i kind of like trust him completely he sets my shoes um so i guess i can talk most to the replicating that piece of it and mm -hmm. if you're doing the same shoe i just do the silver sharpie trick where you just outline the cleat and then throw the new one exactly on um Specialized has this and I'm sure other shoes have this as well, but we laser etch the bottom of our shoes So like if I'm swapping from an old pair of recons to a new pair of recons I can line up my cleat on those lines the same way um, And then mm -hmm. that to Nate's point and to yours is close enough for me um, If there is a millimeter difference here or there my body will adapt to it um, the road is probably the hardest one for me because trying to get the the SPD to match the SPDSL cleat tends to be a bit more difficult, but I think you and I talked about this offline. It's kind of that relative to the spindle is where I, I go for. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's the main thing is where's the spindle in relation to the ball of your foot or, you know, your, a, an anchor point on your foot, so to speak. And one of the things that I do actually is I, I take my son's Play-Doh and I'll put it down on the ground and then I'll step my old shoe in that. 
And then that also, then I, I can mark in that Play-Doh exactly where the pedal spindle is. And then I say, okay, so now I see where the pedal spindle is in relation to the cleat. Um, I just recently did that on a set of new shoes and that made it really easy to be able to, to replicate it. But Amber, you probably had the situation where you were changing shoes and or pedals year to year because of sponsors. Yeah. How'd you deal with this? just get it as close as I can. Honestly. Um, he mentioned never getting able, never being able to find the perfect position where he feels symmetrical on both legs. And I just want to say like, I raced for 12 years and I never found that <laughs> feeling. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, yeah. it, and I remember early on in my career feeling like there was, there was a difference between my right and left side. I couldn't really put my finger on it, but it was never problematic. And then I had a knee injury later in my career. And of course, like it, it was a traumatic injury. Like I hit my knee really hard. So it wasn't like an overuse injury, but of course I panicked and I wanted to do all of the things so I could heal myself. And in that process discovered that I had about a centimeter leg length discrepancy. So of course then I'm like, Oh, this is the problem. And now I need to even on. And so I shimmed the heck out of one side and thought like, Oh, I'll finally find symmetry. And it actually caused like a weird asymmetry in my torso because the truth is no one is symmetrical. It's just, not a thing right. and trying to make yourself perfectly symmetrical on the bike is not necessarily going to be productive. So except that there's going to be some degree of asymmetry, your body's really good at adapting and figuring out the best way to put out power given what you've got. So I wouldn't worry too much about trying to balance left and right and making it feel exactly the same. As long as you can put out power really well, you're, you're increasing, um, you're, you're getting good training adaptations. You're not getting injured. I think bike fits are generally more about injury prevention than necessarily maximizing power output. Uh, cause your body's going to adapt to whatever position you're in. So as long as, yeah, as long as you're feeling pretty good, like, and you get the cleat position close enough, you know, if you're not having knee pain, if you're not having any kind of, you know, weird sensations, you know, beyond just kind of like, Oh, it feels a little bit funny. And I'm not sure if it's exactly the same. It's really okay. There's, um, I thought of a really succinct way to say this. My cleat position is terribly wrong whenever I am stiff and not mobile. Yeah. <laughs> and then when I become mobile, I don't, my cleats are great. So there's no right. issue whatsoever. And um, oftentimes if you, I was just gonna say, if you are injured, the, the, the solution might not be changing your fit. It might be changing your body. Like you might need to be doing some PT work as opposed to moving things around on the bike. Cause what you don't want to do is take a problematic body and fit the bike to a problematic body. You want to make sure yes. that your body is functioning really, really well. And then, you know, then see how you're going to line up on the bike, but you don't want to keep adapting the bike to a problematic body. Cause you're just going to further reinforce compensation that might end up causing injury. There's a fantastic blog post on our, on our forum or sorry, on our blog as well. You can go to trainerroadcom slash blog and we'll link to this below, but it's a, a, it's titled a conversation about bike fit with Dr. Andy Pruitt, who is the man behind uh, body geometry. There was specialized and um, a heck of an athlete in, in and of himself as well, which is really cool. A uh, great guy, but there's a conversation that Sean, one of our copywriters had with him and they cover a lot about this and something interesting that a lot of people don't know about, uh, Andy himself is that he's, he's an amputee. So <clears throat> he's a person that, you know, reason, the reason behind chasing all of this and everything else, a lot of it too, is also personally driven because he's experienced what it's like to have to go through crazy adaptation. So, um, remember that really good point that Amber just said, your body's plastic and you can change it. And, uh, I know you can change your bike fit too, but if you make your body more mobile, it's going to give you more benefits than just being able to tolerate a different cleat position. So you'll be able to, to ride where you should be riding and do so comfortably. If there are any scientists uh, out there, here's what I want. 
I want a study where you hook someone up to a, a gas exchange and you can measure their efficiency, how much oxygen they're using, and then just switch their shoes out with dramatically different cleat positions and have them ride at the same wattage. And I'd love to see if how the uh, oxygen changes. What it will do is it will change, raise the saddle. So that's one thing people don't, some people don't realize, a lot of you do. But if you move your cleats forward or backwards dramatically, that changes your like saddle height feeling. And then that then has to be compensated for. Uh, I had a knee issue early on, uh, like it hurt underneath my kneecap. And the solution for me was to push the cleats way back. But if you push the cleats way back, you get to lower your saddle some more too, which for triathlon, that actually worked really well for me. Um, but it would, that would just be such a cool, interesting study to show like, does it change the efficiency of where you, where you put your cleats? And I don't think it would be extremely hard to do. You just need to have a couple, mm -hmm. I guess you could just move the cleats on the same shoe too, to keep everything the same or buy the same shoe multiple times. Good bike fitters want that study. Bad, bad bike fitters do not want that study. <laughs> so <laughs> let's get into some rapid fire questions. Uh, this one says, I have a question. Could you give us a baseline on which things to do after a workout and in what order? For example, you finish a workout and in the first 15 minutes, do some strength exercises, for example, planks, and then you do something else like stretching. And then after that, you might go and do a recovery, get a recovery drink. Uh, it would be really helpful. Thanks in advance. So it's all, I guess, just share what we do post-workout. Do you want to start, Nate? I, I go like this every time. Yes. I go, <laughs> yes. <pump. laughs> and then I go, screw you, Chad. And then uh, I do a recovery <laughs> drink. And sometimes I'll even do the recovery drink during the cool down. And then I usually like, I want to do other stuff, but I'll sit in a chair for too long and just look on like, oh, what did I miss on Instagram? And I look at Strava and I title my Strava. Uh, but then sometimes I'll go directly into the sauna to try to keep my heat up. And then after that, if I have time, I will lift weights. But I think, especially with Amber is saying, it doesn't... I just, it just feels good. It's like a process thing uh, to get the uh, recovery drink in and to feel like, okay, now it's over, right? Now it's like, ah, mm -hmm. uh, my, all my work is done and everything else doesn't really matter. And I can just kind of do, do, do. And it's it, like, it brings me down. And I think that's a big part about recovering is not being amped up anymore. Mm. Alex, what's your post-workout routine like? Yeah, I use it in a similar fashion to kind of, transition from the bike to work so i always have my recovery mix right after and then normally if i have like i normally get like teriyaki bowls or something from costco and i'll throw one of those in the microwave take the shower come back and then bring that to my computer and back at it try to be as efficient as possible yeah. That's the reality, right? Like, <laughs> like they're like, or if you're a parent, you can't just be like, Hey kids that are screaming and crying. Totally fine. It's okay. Just keep doing that. I need to lay down and, and get into a Zen state. You know, I wish, uh, it'd be great, but, uh, Amber, how about you? Uh, yeah. So recovery shake is my first thing. And then, um, like Nate, I, I like the idea of having like a clear demarcation between like the work time and the, the recovery time. And I haven't been doing this as much lately, but when I was really training in high volume, um, I tried to create kind of a placebo association or no, sorry, a Pavlovian association after every workout. So I would listen to the same soothing song, um, maybe just lay down and close my eyes a little bit as I'm, you know, taking in the recovery shake. And that was sort of like the cue to my body. So like every time I would hear that song, it would just be like, oh yeah, now I, now I can relax. Mm -hmm. And then, um, the other piece of it was later in my career, I was 
uh, racing with some Lithuanian teammates and they had this thing. They were just like, you can't, you, you literally cannot recover or begin the recovery process until you've showered. It's not physically possible. So, <laughs> which I thought was pretty funny, but now that like, once the idea got in my head, I'm like, actually that's really true. <laughs> like, even if you get out of your mm-hmm. chamois and your kid, if you still feel kind of grubby after your workout, like it just doesn't feel like you can really relax until you just get clean. So a uh, shower is part of my post-workout routine now too. My first thing that I do is I get off the bike and I take advantage of the fact that I have a really warm body that just was limber because of the workout I just did. Uh, so I do some, some just cool down stretching while I drink a recovery drink. And then I get up and I shower instantly. And then I eat a meal thereafter because I usually train in the afternoon, but that's, that's my basic routine. Um, I also with music, I have very, uh, I have intense and motivating music many times when I'm training. And then once, once I like, once that last interval hits, I switch the song because I get really motivated by my music and I find that I'll, I'll get off the trainer and I'll still be super hyped up and I won't be able to calm down. So, uh, it's definitely something I do there. Okay. Next one. Can you please explain the team situation there in the United States? Amber, this one has you written all over it. Uh, it says different teams for all the categories that are constantly mentioned. And he says, and you mentioned a team like Mike's bikes, etc. Are these just teams that get discounted bikes from a shop or similar? I assume they don't get paid to race. When I think of a team, I think of at least something where the gear is supplied, but they are much more rare. He says riding for and representing a bike shop is reasonably common. I think, I think there's a bit of, he's wondering this and he's also wondering is Mike's bikes actually legit? I think there's a bit of that too. Oh my goodness. (laughs) (laughs) They have a bunch of people that could probably be pros. Uh, it's crazy. Like they're, and they, the biggest thing, I think Amber's going to cover all of this, but the biggest thing is they race as a team and they do, they do tactical team racing. And when you have fit people and they do tactical racing and you don't have a team, the, 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 <laughs> the difficulty in beating them in road is astronomical, right? Like yes. it is so hard. You, you have to, it's, it's not every, fair. It's, well, it's fair, but it's just, it's, it's a, fair, but it's not fair. Yeah. <laughs> Amber, why don't you, you, you have the most experience in wide range of teams on the road. Yeah. yeah. So and think- especially like the structure, cause that's the big question. That I feel like a lot of people just don't understand like what's pro yeah. what's pro continental what's mm. world tour. Yeah. yeah. So in the very, very loosest sense of the term, a team is a group of people who are wearing the same Jersey. Like that's kind of like the, the most basic requirement for being a team when you're talking about road racing and, and it's a little bit, you know, I think the same would go for other disciplines too. Same Jersey, same team. Um, but what the structure looks like is probably a little different. So there's a huge range of support that these teams have from their sponsors and then the support that they can give to their riders. Right. So it's kind of the wild, wild West when you're talking about, um, domestic level racing. And in, in the U S we have anything from like a local club team to more regional team all the way up to like an elite squad, uh, that maybe pays their riders. And then you have some of the professional teams. And then when you get into the quote unquote pro ranks, that's when you're talking about UCI teams and the UCI is the union Cycliste international So that's our international federation that kind of standardizes and sets out the rules for what teams, you know, what, what boxes each team has to tick in order to qualify to be, whether it's a pro con pro Conti team or a world tour level team. And I don't want to get too far in the weeds on that. Cause it, there's a whole bunch of regulations. Like 
you have to buy certain licenses. The team has to pay in. They have to have a bank guarantee. They have, in some cases, salary minimums. The men's teams have had salary minimums forever. The women's teams, I think, only in the last two years were um, at the world tour level have now have salary minimums, which have a lot of catching up to do with the men's as well. So all of that is is kind of on the pro front. But when you're talking about domestic level racing, you can have a local team of two or three riders all the way up to a regional or nationwide team of a full squad of like 15 to 20 riders. And I think, um, you know, in some cases the, the, the level of support that the riders might be getting is you just get a free Jersey and then you have to buy all your gear and support yourself and show up to the races and pay your own reg fees. Um, and you can or have, you even have to buy the Jersey or you even have <laughs> you to, buy the get to buy the Jersey, <laughs> right? You get to buy the Jersey. Um, and then a lot of, a lot of, it's, it's definitely the case where some local teams have a really high degree of support. Like they have, you know, almost, I would say pro level support. Let me just say there are pro teams out there, quote unquote, pro teams that don't offer a lot of support. And some non pro teams at the local and regional level actually have more financial and sponsors support than some of the, the, the teams that, that claim to be professional. So, um, I think what Nate was getting at is, is really the crux here is how well do the riders race together? And that's, that's the key. Like, yes, you're wearing the same Jersey, but are you executing teamwork while wearing the same Jersey? That's the question. <laughs> and you don't have to have a high level of support to work really, really well together as a team. You don't have to get free stuff to work really, really well together as a team. And if you work really, really well together as a team, people will fear you <laughs> in the best possible way. It's so much fun to be on that team that walks in all wearing the same Jersey and laughing. And you can't wait to get out there race. And, and honestly, when you're a team that works well, well together, there's nothing more intimidating to the rest of the field than having all of you kind of standing around laughing together. Like it, it's, it's awesome. <laughs> it is amazing in cycling that like people wear the same Jersey. And if we were to transfer this to another sport, cause they race against each other, it's like in basketball and John then goes up and we're on the same team and I just block his shot right <laughs> uh, like steal the ball from him because like yeah, what will happen is your so teammate true. will go off and then all i would that'd be like me pulling the whole field back right i'm blocking jonathan's yeah. shot but that happens all the time and all the time, all the time with the same uh, imagine if same that jersey. happened in football yeah, like, tackling quarterback your own people. Just like quarterback just laterals the ball to somebody else on the other team right like <laughs> it'd be like you sacking your own quarterback right it's like yeah. the running back just tackles yeah. the quarterback yeah. grabs the ball and tries to run <laughs> but inside of cycling it's like because everyone wants to it's i think the thing is it's this is what should change i think for i, I love to do a different kind of race series where instead of having a winner it's the team like in basketball it's not who scores the most points it's a team wins and mm -hmm. you can just be a good defensive player and you're on the team that wins right and in football and soccer everything it's not who scores the most points because someone could score the most points on one team but your team can still lose and, right. But in cycling, it is like ranked these 100%. riders. And if we just mm -hmm. cut off that and just say, here's the top teams and you have like points throughout or uh, based on your overall places, these are the teams that win. I think there could be a, a much, it could change the whole sport of like, oh, uh, I can be, uh, it's kind of what happens in the pros. Amber is a domestique. Uh, you don't have to be a winner to like really feel good and be good on that team. <laughs> Where I think at the lower levels, 
that doesn't happen a lot. Although when it does happen, like being on the opposite side of that, it feels so good to set somebody up to do a good job. Mm -hmm. John set me up a ton yeah. of times, which is awesome. We're, but it's we're like Cal and Ricky from Talladega Nights. You and I shake and bake over here. <laughs> I know. You don't. You can just make your own team on, on the fly. That's the fun part about it too. You can before the race work, talk about a friend, work out a plan. You that can always execute it. That always goes bad for me. But <laughs> <laughs> it's what is right well. before? If it's Remember, like you won when we did that. So well, we were on the it, same. We had the same well. jersey. It's different, but other this times I'm thinking this other races true, where yeah. they're like, I'm going to pull you in the last lap, and I get yeah. behind them, and I'm like, Why are we 40 wheels yeah. back? Like, when are you going to start pulling, yeah. <laughs> you Amber? Yeah. Yeah, I think I want to just point out, I think there's a huge misconception here that the more support means you're on a better team because I've, I've seen this, you know, I've seen this in talking with people who are trying to organize a local club team or a regional team and they fixate so much on, you know, how, how, how much of the reg fees can we cover? How much free stuff can we get? That is not what makes a team. Yes, you need to be in the same jersey so that people know that the person in the break is on your team and you don't need to chase them. But that's really the minimum requirement. And from there, the focus really needs to be on the team chemistry because the team chemistry, the degree of cooperation and alignment within the team means so much more than any level of support. And I think that, you know, it, it's fun to watch the pro teams, you know, especially, especially every year around this time, January is coming up. That's when everybody's going to have their new kit day and they're going to be posting photos on Instagram of the boatloads of kit and sunglasses and cool new shoes and hype new travel bags. And it looks awesome. And it's definitely something that you think like, Oh, that'd be so cool to be on like a well-supported team and the support helps. Don't get me wrong. Like it definitely takes away a layer of stress when you don't have to worry about your equipment and it relieves some of that financial pressure. But let me just say again, it's the team chemistry, the cooperation, how well do you execute together on the road? That's what really makes a team. It's not about looking flash and matching and having the cool equipment. Okay. It can be fun. Don't get me wrong, but that's not the crux of it. The crux of it is the teamwork that's happening um, among that group of athletes. That's Alex, why the best teams totally have different both. different for mountain biking, right, Alex? Yes, <laughs> I was going to say, this is why the best teams have both. The, yeah, the best yeah. teams have all that support and the chemistry. Like, right. like I looked at something like Legion, right? Like the Williams brothers grew up racing together all the time. Like they could sprint with their eyes closed and know exactly where each other are. Like, yeah. yeah, you can't pay for that kind of chemistry. Like that's, that's just a type of knowledge and desire. Like there needs to be that culture in the team. Like from the top down, it needs to be said, like for us to race properly together, like we need to know each other. We need to practice together. We need to respect one another and we need to win as a team. I don't care if it's mm. you with the Jersey on the crosses finish line. I don't care if it's you, like we need to be dynamic in that race and if they manage to sneak into the break, we're going to do everything we can to protect that break. And if you don't have the riders that you're like, oh, that guy's in the break, like he's not going to be able to hold it, like build a better roster, like build a roster that you can be proud of and put anybody in the break and anybody can win on the day. Like that's how you're dangerous. Like all seven of you show up and it's like, oh, well, they can all sprint. They can all go in the breakaway. Like not sure what we're going to do here. Yeah, It's not overall numbers either. It's about having the right athletes like you're talking about alex um I, I have a question really quick on this though alex because assuming that you can because mountain biking is different assuming that you can have support mm -hmm. so separating support from a team assuming that you have support is our teams crucial in mountain biking 
in your perspective? Um, as far as team tactics, no. I'd say the most team tactics I've ever pulled is like a short track race or a fat tire crit at one of the Epic Ride series out here. Like I've set up Howie for a win there before. Like, like I can pull because it's a road type race on mountain bikes theoretically. But I think the the support you get in mountain biking is a little different in terms of like it's great to get free stuff and it's great to you know have the the right kit and like you're thankful for those things but it's also like there's things on race day like having a mechanic available to take care of your bikes and having someone in the feed zone like like at nationals for example i had my fiance and daniel in the feed zone and what it allowed me to do is i didn't carry a bottle or a gel and that's a true performance advantage and and i can trust them to do that so it's it's a different support that like leads to success. It's definitely not as much of a team sport in the sense of like everybody's on the court, but I think it's a huge team sport in terms of like who gets you there. And even in the off season, right? It's like that team around you, like my fiance, for example, like I posted the other day, I was doing questions on Monday. It's like, I wouldn't be anywhere near where I am today without her. Like she's an athlete in her own right. So she gets it. Never makes me feel bad for riding bikes. Like, she puts up with all my <laughs> crap about <laughs> weighing food and cause like on, on our, at our house, like she cooks the dinner and I do the dishes cause I'm a crap cook. So like when she's putting all that <laughs> together, like she's, she's weighing the food for me. She allows me to like put my stuff in a bowl. And like when we make pasta, she's boiling two things of water cause I'm a psychopath. And like, <laughs> I think there's support beyond like team support that really gets an athlete to where they are. And and to Amber's point of view, it's like sometimes you have to put it, your own financial in there to receive the result. You know, like massages can be expensive, but it's like they're they're crucial to the end result. You know, keeping your bike up to date can be time consuming, expensive, but they're important to the end result. So it's it's kind of weighing all those things. And the best contract isn't necessarily always the one that's going to pay you the most. Imagine if the podium so right now it's like one, two, three, right? Two, three people. Imagine if the podium was everyone on the team, like in road racing, and they all got up. It's just like when you win the Super Bowl, you don't just have like the quarterback up there, the whole team's there. And then imagine if something in mountain biking or even in cycling, the mechanic got up there, the Swanee got up there, and the coach got up there. And like, this is the actual team, right? Like an F1 team, mm -hmm. the whole team is like, they all celebrate. And it's like every, the people behind the scenes are extremely important, right? Wouldn't that be mm -hmm. cool? Yeah. Like that would be yeah. so cool. And I think then some of those people too that really do influence on the back end would get more recognition. And I think you'd feel closer as a team. And Absolutely. I bet everyone would even work harder and that would just be a cool culture. Yeah, it's like the iceberg analogy. Like what you see on the surface is just the tip of it. Like there's so much that goes into getting someone to the podium, like internally, externally around that. Like it's, it's yeah. a lot. Wow, what a rapid fire that, question that, that was. That was so rapid. Um, yeah, <laughs> we should I don't know how we did section. that. <laughs> <laughs> let's go to the next one. He says, uh, I, let's say I finished the base phase and the build phase. However, I'm not preparing for any specific event at the moment. Shall I proceed with a specialty phase or do another build phase? After that, shall I move again to the base training? Okay, so that confused me, and I'm sure it confused <laughs> everybody else. And I have one answer for this, and I included this one intentionally, plan builder. It's perfect. It's all you need. And like, we get so many questions about this. Like, hey, I'm doing Sweet Swap Base, should I do this? Plan Builder. Like, everyone check it out. And something cool that you can do is even if you're not a TrainRoad user, you can go to trainerroad.com and you can use Plan Builder to see what it would give you ahead of time. But 
it, it's it's part of Chad's brain that we built, uh, and it's very good at figuring out which plan you should pick. We had two. The reason why is we had too many of these questions, and we had explained it on the podcast, but it is confusing. So there's it's it's there's like a lot of like, well, if it's this, then this, and if it's this, then this, and if it's this, then this. So what we did is we had Chad write down all the cases, then we had engineers put it in the software of how to build the blocks together, depending on where your A race is or multiple A races and how much time you have. So uh, mm-hmm. yeah, that's that's why we did that and it worked out well. Yes. Uh, next one that I'm gonna paraphrase, basically the question is, I have collegiate races, which are basically a mini stage race because it's like Friday, Saturday, Sunday, sort of a thing. And if they should schedule those in their calendar as individual races or stage races. Um, and the answer is stage races, but we get a questions that are really similar to this all the time. So figured it would be a good one to involve. If you have something with multi-day, make it a stage race. Even if it's not called a stage race, make it a stage race. That's going to be a good way to handle it. Amber has a note. Okay. What's your note, Amber? (laughs) Yay. Collegiate cycling. (laughs) (laughs) The last rapid fire one says follow up on Nate's comment at the end of episode 284 regarding the inaccuracy of estimating calorie burn from heart rate. How can this estimate be improved and how accurate are the estimates from trainer road? Nate, this has yeah. got you all over it. Use a power meter. That's going to help. Uh, mm-hmm. Calibrate your power meter. And then we have the, the, the way that this all happens because the math is confusing. And every time I describe it, I think I get it wrong, but there is a blog post. So it's called uh, KJ to calories conversion. How many calories do I burn cycling? So it, probably if you Google any of those words, especially if you put trainer on it, will come up and then you can read how you get uh, kilojoules to calories, the math on that. And we are assuming an efficiency, uh, but it's very hard to figure out your efficiency. I mean, you, you have to pay money and go to a lab and all that sort of stuff. And that probably might even change too over time. But this gets you pretty close, mm-hmm. way closer than heart rate, in my opinion. Well, not in my opinion, way closer than heart rate based on science. These are the things that Alex stays up at night about uh, and thinks yeah. about. Like 23.3 or 23.4 today. How yeah. many grams of pasta should I eat? 3.6 In this case, kilojoules per watt per hour. Done. <laughs> yeah. I was just going to say, in this case, Nate actually did have science to back that up. I just want to point that out. <laughs> this is true. Sometimes We I don't do. say that enough. We say the opposite all the time. We don't say that enough when we have science to back it up. Okay, uh, Greg's question. We're out of rapid fire now, so uh, back to the normal schedule. Uh, Greg says, I started train a road to be faster than my friends. I'm there and I'm loving it. I never had any intention reason. to race, but I'm, but I'm, getting, I know, right? <laughs> yeah. He says, I never had any intention to race, but I'm getting the itch and I can understand this, Greg. Uh, it makes sense because now you're fast. He says, I'm 33 years old, have never raced before, and I'm very scared of <coughs> crashing. Besides the fact that I have no clue how I'd replace my bike if it were to get broken in a crash, I can't afford to miss work because of a racing injury. Is crashing in a race just too high of a probability for some to consider racing? And how do you justify taking that risk when you have responsibilities that hinge on you not being injured? As a highly competitive person, I'm not sure that just taking it easy in a race is realistic. And that's smart and wise of you to anticipate that, by the way. Uh, Thanks again for all you do and love the podcast. Uh, Great question. How we justify it? What do you think uh, on this? You've come off of a recent injury, so it's probably very fresh in your mind. Yeah. I mentioned this on my Instagram, tr.nate, and it is the idea of asymmetric risk and where the upside is better. You want to do things that the upside's better than the downside. I have a friend 
and he uh, was racing and he did not have health insurance. And in the US, for I think most people know this, but if you don't have health insurance, you can have a uh, you can have a, a health event that could bankrupt you or you could be in a position where a health event you can't get uh, treatment and you could die from it. So what uh, he was racing, but he also has a physical job and he was like the main breadwinner of the family. So if he were to get hurt and had something, basically income for the family would be gone. And that could be, that's a huge risk, right? Like that's not a risk that I want to take. I could, I can get a concussion. I can break my collarbone and trainer road will still live on without me. And like my family can get income, which I like. Uh, so I personally, in that situation, I would not be racing without health insurance just because the downside risk uh, is, is, is very, very big, right? And the likelihood of something that could take you out from work um, could be huge. Also with my, like, I want to do, it's just managing risk too from race to race. So uh, like, I want to do more gravel and triathlon in the future. I feel like the, you can still crash in those, but it's the amount of crashing is less. I can do less technicals um, cross country. I don't even need to do anything like burly anymore with big drops or stuff like that. And then in crits, I, I really want to have, I have this cat one goal and I keep getting older in 2020, made it hard, makes me get harder, but I still want to get cat one because it gets with you the rest of your life. And that's like one of my bucket list check boxes, but mm. it's the way that you race it and the courses you pick. Okay. so. I talk to Pete and he tells me what the crashy courses are, which is really awesome. And then also the downhill speed. Like I probably won't ever do San Rafael again where someone crashed right in front of me, but I was actually pretty good on that course. But going, if there's courses where naturally you'll get to 40 miles per hour, well, if there's a crash event there, it's probably gonna be pretty like, mm -hmm. pretty severe. So I like courses that aren't super technical too, or if they are technical, uh, it's like a 180 where everyone slows down, you crash in a 180, like it's not a big deal, right? You're going four or five miles mm -hmm. per hour, probably, hopefully not. And then checking the conditions. If it's raining, I'm not going to race. And then also how you race. So inside of it, um, you'll see on the videos, I'll tail gun a lot. And then when it slows down, I'll be off the front and then I'll, or I'll be right out the front. So I'll tail gun and be off the, or be off the front. And I don't want to be in the mix. I also don't want to be in this like 30 person sprint. You'll see some videos where if I'm not feeling it and I know I'm going to go backwards to the sprint, I will sit up and everyone goes by me and I get last place or second to last place. And I am perfectly, perfectly fine with that because a lot of injuries happen during a sprint. But if you're like second or third wheel and you're really sprinting against two or three people, it's like sprinting a breakaway, which is pretty cool. Mm -hmm. So you gotta, you gotta know yourself too at the end. If you, uh, Amber, have you ever do this too? Have you ever sat up when you know like you don't have it going in the sprint? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I get myself out of there. For sure. If, 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 mm -hmm. if it's, if it's, if it's not my day or especially, especially if I've done, if I just finished a lead out, it's like, I want to get out of there. <laughs> get yeah, scary, me out of right? here as fast as possible. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, part of it is like, I don't want to put anybody else at risk being there. Um, but, but also, yeah, I don't need to be in that mix if, if I'm not contesting the finish. We see a lot of, so I heard, yeah, yes. Three key points that I heard from you, Nate, it's the course, the conditions and how you plan to race it. And those three things are like, uh, kind of variables that you keep track of, or kind of try to figure out for each race to see if you want to do it or not. It might be helpful if each one of us kind of shared where our thresholds were or how we evaluate risk to maybe give some more context to people, because it's, it's not, um, 
I feel like you have to be analytical about the risk. If you turn a blind eye to it, eventually it's going to bite you. And like what you said, Nate, you have to think of the upside and the downside of each one of those scenarios. Um, for, for me, I, I, I don't race dirt bikes anymore. And I do that for a very specific reason because the risk profile is too high. Uh, the, the speed and the danger that you have with that sport is just too high. I don't have a motorcycle anymore that I drive on the road for the same reason because the risk profile is too high. I love it and I miss it every day. Um, but it's okay. I'm, I'm alive without it. So then, but really like within cycling, a good example of this is last year I did EWS North star and that was too much risk, but I ignored it. And you know what? It, it affected my performance. Cause the whole entire race, I felt like I was doing something bad. Like I shouldn't be doing this. And it was weird because I was like an addict. Cause at the same time it was giving me almost the same high I used to get from dirt bikes. And I was like, Oh my gosh, this is amazing. <laughs> but then I was also the, the risk that I knew I was putting myself up to. I was like, this is irresponsible. I, you know, I'm, I'm, pro I'm riding, I can ride these trails slow and it's fine, but at race pace, I'm taking risks and I'm not acting logically or rationally. I'm taking risks I wouldn't otherwise take. Um, so it just like Greg, you're kind of mentioning, you're anticipating the fact that in, you know, race brain kicks in and you don't make the best decisions sometimes. So I actually have made a choice to not race anymore, at least Enduro World Series level stuff like that, you know, that's really rough and everything else. I'm not doing it because it's too much. It's why I like cross country racing. Uh, the way I tend to race criteriums, that, that is like a struggle point with me because I tend to race them more in the heat of the battle rather than being a long bomb sort of a person off the front or back. Um, but the way that I justify it is uh, for me, like cycling is just a balance thing. Uh, clearly it's got professional ties for me as well. It's what we do for work. And I want to be tied into that to constantly understand all of you or do my best to understand all of you and your emotions and everything else and why you race. Um, but at the same time, you know, it, it is something that I guess that for me, I justify it because I get an upside from it. And that upside is setting goals and accomplishing those goals in a competitive setting. For me, that's, that has a real true intrinsic value for me in my life. Um, I, I get a lot of lift out of that and a lot of benefit from it. So, but that's why I don't do the really risky ones. I just find ways like cross country mountain biking, I feel like is one of the least risky ones, strangely enough in most cases, because it's not as you know crazy and you're just racing by yourself. How, how do you, uh, do that, Alex? How do you weigh the risk and justify it? Cause you have a job that you have to come back to as well. Unlike just a professional. Yeah. I mean, I guess I preface it with, I'm very fortunate to have healthcare through my job so much like Nate specialized will live on without my analytics for a few weeks. Um, but for me, it's, I like mountain biking cause I always joke around that if you crash on a road bike, 5% of the time it's your fault. If you crash on a mountain bike, 95% of the time it's your fault. So <laughs> I feel very much in control of that crash factor. Um, not to say you don't come around a corner and you find some stones there and wipe out, but I think it's very much you control how fast you go. So you control how much risk there is over most obstacles. Um, there's very few races where there's not like a beeline if you wanted to skip some feature, like it costs time. Yeah. But like there is a way out. So I feel like XC racing is, is a good risk for, for most people because they're in control. You can always just go a little slower on the descents if, if that's what you want to do. So for me, it's just probably nothing that'll kill me, you know, like 
<laughs> and I also take it in baby steps. Like recently this off season, I've been practicing on jumping, but I won't jump gaps. You know, I'll, I'll jump tables and, you know, slowly working my way up to bigger drops and stuff like that. And I think kind of finding a zone just outside my comfort zone, but not so far out that, you know, you're putting yourself at risk. And that was what my suggestion to Craig was going to be is just, you can find events where you're very much in control, like individual time trials, you know, currently with COVID, probably most of the racing is in staggered starts anyway that you would find XC racing, you know, most of the time, like you start as one, but you're on the course by yourself. So find that risk profile where you're in the driver's seat and you can kind of control that. Whereas like Nate said at the San Rafael crit, someone just crashes in front of you. And it's like, most, some of the time you can react and some of the time it's like, well, here we go. How do you do that, Amber? Like <laughs> a, a whole career of road racing because <laughs> it's so risky with all of those riders on those tiny, crazy streets. It seems like it. On a, oh, hang on a second. Oh, I think Amber's muted for me. Sorry, that was my fault. That was my fault. She's back. I'm back. Okay. (laughs) Um, It seems really risky, and and to a degree it is, but I want to throw out an an analogy here that I think um, it looks riskier from the outside looking in than it actually is. It's kind of like when you learn to first learn to drive a car, the idea of driving on the freeway is really terrifying. But now most of you listening have been driving for a really long time, and getting on the freeway is not something that even remotely scares you. But here's the thing. You still can't control what anybody around you is doing. Other people can make mistakes that cause accidents. Um, but the point is that you are confident enough in your own experience and skill set that if something were to go wrong, you could manage it. So there's no there's no fear anymore around that. And that's eventually what happens with cycling. And so it looks really scary from the outside looking in. But once you're in a situation where you're in the middle of a peloton of 200 people, um, you've developed some skills that actually make it feel a lot more safe. And so I think one of the things to keep in mind is the level of, of, of quantitative risk changes a lot with your skill. And the more skilled you become, it is again, like driving a car, you can drive defensively. You can drive in a way that's going to minimize your risk versus being a little bit more, (laughs) a little bit more loose with it on the bike. If you learn skills in terms of you learn which riders are safer riders to be around. You learn what kinds of obstacles you need to worry about. I personally think that oftentimes more technical courses can be safer because people are more on their toes. If it's not a technical course, people can get complacent and that sometimes increases the risk. Um, I've also found that sometimes like speed can be, speed can help. Uh, Momentum can be your friend. And so it's not always really, intuitive as to what is going to increase or decrease the risk. But I do think it's worth not riding off racing completely. Um, that's just my two cents. But again, as Nate was speaking to that asymmetric risk, I think it's important. And the other component of that risk is it depends on the skill of those around you. So we talked about, you know, pulling the plug if I'm not contesting the sprint, but I would also say that if you're coming into a sprint finish, the higher the speed is coming into the finish, the safer it is for everybody because you, it's it's harder for everybody to kind of swarm and create really crowded conditions when the speed is really high. And that was actually one of my jobs as a lead out person was to make sure that the speed was high enough and we maintain a high enough speed that we actually keep everybody safe. And everybody in the Peloton, even if they're not on their team, they appreciate that because they know it's going to be safer for them as well if they allow us to take control of the front and keep the speed up. 
So there's a lot of elements that go into it, but I would say with experience, you start to be able like I could walk around a crit course and say, okay, this corner is going to be tricky. This, you know, these are the potential risks that might occur here. So this is a point on the course where I, it's worth it to me to burn some matches so that I'm in the front. And when you're in the front, you're usually around stronger, more skilled and experienced riders. So you're going to reduce your risk. So there's lots of little things like that, that you can do to mitigate your risk, as well as learning how to race and, and maneuver yourself within the, within the group defensively. That said, all of this requires experience and a learning curve. <laughs> so mm -hmm. that's where you kind of have to step back and decide for yourself um, how, how asymmetric is that risk? How asymmetric would that risk be by putting yourself on that learning curve in the first place? In San Rafael, if you, it, hmm. uh, in San Rafael on that descent, you can see the video on our YouTube. I did like five extra pedal strokes every single time going into the downhill so that I was the first one in the downhill. Because if I'm the mm -hmm. first one in the downhill and it's so fast, no one can pass me. I'd also try to like, I'd, I'd, I don't know what I did every time, but I kind of guard the inside so no one could come up on the inside on me and then come out and, and take my turn. That is, that's like a, if you can do that, that is a regular mm -hmm. descent for you where you're not in the middle of a whole bunch of people. And uh, if there's, you know, 10 people in front of you, that's 10 people that could overlap wheels and could go on a crash. So to, to what Amber said, you just put a little bit more work in and you can put yourself into a much better uh, situation. And it was also a great, like, uh, just tactically, it was great to go into that downhill first because if I took it fast, other people would gap. And on these downhills, if anyone touches the brakes, there's this gap. And then it, that, you might not have touched your brakes, but it could happen way in front of you. And then they all had to chase back. We have like a video of me looking back because I'm like, should I be like going hard now? Because there's all these <laughs> gaps of everyone behind us. And I, you just get yeah. to your five pedal strokes at the beginning of that downhill made it so that you saved this huge surge of like 10 seconds to try to uh, catch back onto a group. So it, good tactically yeah. and safe. Yeah, and this, this covers like, or this addresses a lot of, I guess, popular things that are said about racing that are probably not true. Like cat five is a crash fest, right? And, and everybody says that I never once kept crashed in the cat five race. Um, it was once I was a cat four that I was, that I had my only road crash that I've had in a race. Right. So like, I think there's a lot of strange barriers where we assign the danger or the risk in bike racing rather than being analytical about it. We just assign these generalities, but like Nate said, it was a great, there's a ways to manage the risk. Like you can, it, with the way you ride, like Pete is a great example. He has raced so many criteriums. And if you ask Pete, he actually hasn't crashed that much at all while riding a bike. He's avoided so many of them. And it's because of the way he races. He's heads up. He's smart about it. But the way that Pete races, if you watch any of our race analysis videos, which you totally should on YouTube, by the way, you can check it out. There's a whole playlist of them uh, where Pete, Amber, Nate, they, they go through. Even uh, Keegan has looked at some where he's analyzed on the mountain bike side. Really interesting stuff. But Pete is always off the front or off the back. It's one of the two. And Pete is hardly ever in any sort of an in-between. And as a result, he finds himself in spots where he isn't uh, he isn't putting himself in, a, in excessive risk. So it's all it's all very that sort of a thing and is, is just look for what you can manage, I guess is what I'm getting at. Absolutely. If you have a race and it seems risky, look at what you can manage to try to break it down a little more. You, you, you agree with that, Alex? Yeah, that's a fair point. I was actually thinking I haven't crashed once in a road race or a crit. Like to be fair, I think I still believe the risk is higher than a mountain bike race, but like to your point, you can race them in such a way. Like I always raced them knowing that mountain biking was, was what I want to do. So 
I don't need to crash here. You know, I don't need to take any undue risk. So like I've raced crits, I've raced road races. I, I have my cat too. So I guess that tells you I've, I've raced enough races and knock on wood. I've never, never crashed. So. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. Let's get into the last question from Des. He says, Hey all, first of all, love the podcast and big fan of the three amigos, but it's great that you're now mixing up with Amber, Pete and Alex. After 18 months off the bike to renovate the house, I have been back on trainer road since February of 2020. Alex relates to this with all the house renovations he's been doing. Um, and he says an increase to his watt KG from 2.5 to 3.5. Not bad for 10 months. He says, yeah, not bad at all. Way to go. That's amazing. That's, that's impressive. Getting close to working your way toward the, the tough four mark, uh, (laughs) which is really cool. So uh, he says, anyway, to my point, my usual biking buddy has lost his cycling mojo. He's had injuries and illness over the last few years and is struggling now to find the motivation to get out biking. He's tried a couple of times this year to start the sweet spot based low volume plan, but only lasted a few weeks each time, either due to injury or fatigue. When we head out on the road, he's struggling to keep up partly because I have gotten quicker and partly because he's not been able to put in the training. I think the part of the problem is when he decides to start again, he's inconsistent on his days on the trainer and ends up doing all three days consecutively at the end of the week in order to not miss a session and therefore burying himself. I think he would be better off trying to stick to just a couple of sessions a week with a day or two of recovery between them and maybe a spin out on a Sunday. But how do I go about offering this advice without sounding like I'm preaching, (laughs) especially as I'm doing mid volume and often do four days in a row as I move my Wednesday session to a Friday. It's like saying I can do this, but you're too weak. That's what he's inferring. Uh, truth is he's really strong, but just goes too hard too soon, maybe rather than building up too slowly or rather than building up slowly. It's been a weird year to say the least. And I think now more than ever, we need to look out for each other. So how do I help? It's a, um, a good question. And it kind of ties back to motivation. Like what we were talking about, you know, motivation is something intrinsic and it's tough to be able to manage that. But, um, Nate, do you want to start us off on this? We have a few ways to address this, but I just want to cover one thing first is that Des like, you're not your friend's coach. Does your friend want to cycle? Like it's kind of sounds like this would be optimal for your friend, but if your friend is lacking motivation, they might not want to do this at all, right? <laughs> they just might want to hang out with you some. So you shouldn't be like, uh, you try to like, let's support the friend and say, hey, if do you want to be in another sport? Like we could spend time doing <laughs> that or it could be different or you might be in no sport at all. Um, but don't like, it's not your responsibility to make your friend be motivated and, uh, enjoy cycling. Like that's what a coach is. So honestly, if this was my friend and someone was doing this, I'd, I'd say, Hey, do you even like this? Do you just want to go easy? And when you say there's two, there's, he has a hard time keeping up. I'm like, what are you doing to this friend? Like, like, y- y- why are you would the you dropper? Are you <laughs> dropping your friend? <laughs> I've ridden with, so John, uh, I've dropped John exactly zero times. And when John rides with me, he knows he's going to go slower and he rides with me slower and we ride together mountain biking and it's fun. And I hope he has fun. And then if there is yeah. a time where he wants to do an effort, we say, okay, we're going to do an effort on this. And then he waits for me at the top. But, uh, it's, it's kind of, don't be the friend who half wheels and is like, Dropping the person constantly, that just is no fun for everybody else. You have dropped me before, and it was this year. 
Yeah, people should have tuned into our Instagrams and you were on your e-bike and I was doing intervals and, oh, yeah. <laughs> and you were, you were dropping me while I was suffering in the pain cave at 8,000 feet. I was so, smiling. Uh, <laughs> yeah. um, but this is a really good point. And, and Des, I'm going to ask you to be honest with yourself and all of us listening to this, be honest with ourselves is our desire to have a friend that is equally fast to us, selfless or selfish. Like it, Nate, you kind of mentioned the optimal thing. Like it's optimal for your friend or is it really optimal for you to have a friend that's the right speed for you? Right? Where, like where, where do your true allegiances lie? Cause that's a really tough thing to be able to balance like <clears throat> your own personal motivations and also how much you appreciated having a friend that you could ride with. Cause I understand that that's totally, that that's a real thing. It's so cool when you can have somebody that you can ride with and you can both have a pretty similarly shared experience. That's really powerful yeah. and it's really helpful. That's something that you have, right? Alex, uh, more or less with Daniel. Yeah. I was going to say, I think to back up a little bit, I agree with Nate. The first thing is like, I think just establishing you care, like we're friends, like, what do you want out of this? Like, I see, you know, you were here and now you're here. Would you, do you want my help getting faster or would you like to try basketball or, you know, whatever, whatever it is that you want to do, um, for Daniel and I, obviously like his goal is to stop Jonathan from ever getting a national title in his life. So <laughs> dang it. <laughs> and it's working. <laughs> it's worked for years. <laughs> so, so that's, that's super helpful. But even with us, like he performs at a super high level and, and how we do it is like on workout days, we've figured out really well, which bike I have to ride versus he to ride for us to hit the same power numbers. So like today, this afternoon we'll ride sweet spot. And he's going to be riding on his Roubaix and I'll either be on my Diverge or my mountain bike. And that normalizes our numbers so that he can hit his targets. I can hit my targets and we can still work out together. And we love that, you know, and it's like the biggest part of our relationship is that neither of us bring an ego to it. It's not me beating him. It's us both getting stronger and us both beating Jonathan, really. (laughs) (laughs) The common bond. (laughs) Oh, man, that's a key thing. Alex just said. I'm thinking about my relationship too with people I like to train with when there is a big discrepancy when it's just like yes I'm the beta and you're the alpha like mountain biking there's no I I have no ego in like this descent I'm gonna like show John it is is nothing close (laughs) to that and when there is that big thing it can be super fun because the ego is gone and it's just like you know just having fun out there with your buddy riding a bike for Which sure. Is so cool. And there's yeah. multiple like facets to it, right? Like there are things Daniel's better than I am at. Like he smokes me in sprints, you know, there's certain styles of descending growing up in SoCal that he's better than I at. So it's like, there's still stuff that I can learn from him. And I argue that all beginners have a different way of looking at things and you can learn something from everybody. So it's like, mm-hmm. it's not like I'm just dragging Daniel around all day and I'm not benefiting from it. It's like, he's <laughs> holding me accountable. He gets me out the door every day. And like, he's, kick my butt on a fair few descents. So it's like, it, it pushes me as well. And I think it's camaraderie that makes us both faster. Mm, yeah. Amber, what, what thoughts do you have on this? Cause I, I know that you, you always joke that you live in the middle of nowhere in Connecticut, <laughs> um, but you have David, your husband, and then I, you know, living in Europe, I'm sure that you also were with teammates, that sort of stuff. This whole, like this whole tricky thing of like, and I'm using air quotes here, how to motivate a friend Mm, yeah. What are your thoughts on this? Yeah. So if, if 
we don't know the situation, but let's say your friend does still want to ride and they would like your help in getting motivated. And if that's the case, then again, I want to kind of go back to what we were talking about earlier in, in today's episode, that motivation is intrinsic. It's not about pushing your friend or helping them make more motivation. It's about helping them remove barriers to the motivation. So what are some of the things that might be getting in the way right now? And one of those things might be just feeling self-conscious that his fitness isn't where it normally is, or it's not the same as yours. And if you can remove that as a barrier, like, Hey man, I don't care how fit you are. I'm here to spend time with you. Um, a lot of us actually, when I was racing professionally, a lot of us pros would go out and train together all the time with people that we would be racing against maybe even in a day or two. And we would train together and we all had very different strengths. Like I would go out and train with climbers on a climb and we would ride together to the base of the climb. We'd all do our efforts up and down the climb at different speeds and paces, obviously, but then we would regroup and ride home again. Um, or going out and doing sprint workouts, you know, and we all had varying levels of ability in those specific things, but it didn't matter. We were just the accountability aspect we wanted to spend time together. We enjoy riding bikes together. The workout part of it, we could do a little bit differently, but we let go of our egos, even though we were actually competitors, right? So if, if we can do that as pros, I think anybody can do that because we're a very competitive bunch, but I think yeah. that it's important to talk with your friend about like, what is going on? Like it, it, there's the lack of motivation. And then sometimes like there can be a layer on top of that of like feeling bad about not being motivated. Like, can we get rid of that layer at least and make that a little bit easier and then just deal with like, okay, what else, what else might be blocking the motivation? Um, so I just encourage you to reframe it. You know, if in fact your friend does want to continue riding, really does enjoy it and wants to keep, keep this aspect of your relationship going, then, you know, can you as a friend help them identify and remove some of those motivational sticking points as opposed to being the person that that's either trying to push or trying to coach them? Yeah. yeah motivation yeah, I feel like can be very variable and dynamic, like even within one person, yes. like my motivation day to day can change so much. And it's like, I think about it. It's part of the reason I have pancakes and Nutella before each workout. Like, <laughs> sorry if you like oatmeal, but if I'm going to suffer through intervals, I'm not going to suffer through oatmeal first. Like I only have so much mental capacity. So it's like I give myself a reward and then it's like, oh, sweet. I had pancakes. Now I'm in a good mood. Now I'm going to go smash some intervals, you know, and it's like, like, I feel like different things can motivate you each day. It's like, you know, can't have new bike day every day. So it's trying to find that thing that gets you out of the door in that moment. You know, is it a process goal? Is it a, you know if I do this, then, then we can do that. Like whatever it is, I think it's finding what motivates you in the moment and yeah. And not feeling any wanna, guilt for not being motivated, I think is huge. Yeah, exactly. I want to follow up on this one too. Um, I did a gravel clinic a couple years ago and one, uh, Mo Bruno Roy, who's a former professional cyclocross racer. She is amazing. Um, she's, she's long been retired now, but she's a brilliant teacher. She's so good. Like she can figure out how she was able to do things at a very high level and she can break it down and teach it in really accessible pieces for people. So she, she's amazing. But we were um, doing a series of talks together and she was kind of, she jokingly said in, in this talk, she was like, yeah, how many of you feel like you're not fit enough to have bike friends? And I just, it, it just hit me so hard because I was like, that's so true. How many of us at some point feel like you're not fit enough to have bike friends? And I have felt this. I mean, I raced professionally for 12 years and I felt this, um, a couple years ago when I was going through my concussion and Nate, I feel you here. Um, 
it was really frustrating because I, I couldn't train for a long time and I really wasn't fit. And at that time I was involved in a lot of different gravel events. And I remember really struggling with this and being so worried about showing up to these events and feeling so unfit and like, I wasn't going to be at the front of the group. And, and it was such a pleasant surprise to be there. And all my friends were there and they were happy to see me and they were happy to ride with me, even though I wasn't fit, even though my fitness wasn't there, my friends were still there. And that was such a cool and wonderfully validating thing to experience. And I think that that's, that's one of the things that we can offer to each other, right? Is that reminder that, Hey, first of all, riding bikes is not a condition of our friendship. Riding bikes while fit is not a condition of our friendship. Riding bikes fast is not a condition of our friendship, right? The friendship comes first. And, and, and I know even for me, like that was a super powerful experience and something that I was really genuinely afraid of. I, I was showing up to these events thinking like, I don't have any more friends cause I don't have any more fitness, yeah. which is the most yeah. ridiculous thing. <laughs> and you don't have to be fast we to think be a cyclist. Right, you, we have exactly. a week off the bike and suddenly we're like, I, I, I shouldn't even ride. I don't know why I have a bike. Right. Like, so that's, <laughs> that happens. Like all of us feel that, you know, the, the thing that comes to mind for me is the best way to be a motivational force for your friend is to make sure that they know that you'll always be there for them to support them when they need it. Not when you need it, but when they need it, because what, once again, like Alex said, motivation ebbs and flows. But if you know that your friend doesn't ebb and flow and you know that your friend will always be there when you need them, that's, that's the best way for you to be a great friend for them. Uh, because then you can always count on them and that can be uh, training's tough and having that sort of accountability partner, yes, can be helpful, but also having the support partner can be really helpful too. So, and, and one thing that I keep thinking of with this too, is why this is one of the reasons why we created group workouts, that feature and why I think it's so helpful is because Nate and I can do the workout and we can do it together at totally different wattage. And Alex and I have done this before too. Uh, where we've done the, you know, same workout, totally different wattage and, and it's, but we still, it's, it's nice because we get to be there for each other and we're able to help each other. So there are ways to do it for sure. I think the main thing is prioritize the friendship and then let everything else fall into place thereafter. And then if you do that, it'll be really valuable and helpful and shout out to the, my original friend who got me into cycling, Roger Mooney. So, um, really grateful for good friends that got me into it. So, and he was super kind and he's, he's always there for me, uh, to go for a ride if we want to. John, I have a special announcement. This is the first time in memory that we got through the entire dock of questions. Like I know in the time it's like amazing. ever, 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 ever. There's usually like for those that don't know, we usually have a, like four extra questions that get pushed to the next week that we never got to. So it's anyways, true. Good it's job, true. team. It's what happens. <laughs> we did it. We Let's did actually it. address a couple of live questions. Ooh. First one says, th- "Thanks for answering my question." I know, right? Bonus. We have room. Thanks for answering my question about recovery routines. However, you barely touch the subject of strength and stretching. Does this mean they are not important? I'm wondering specifically about stretching. I bet that you're asking about the whole post-workout stretch versus pre-workout stretch and if it's effective and that sort of a thing. Um, There's a lot of conflicting research that exists about stretching and its effectiveness for anything, (laughs) strangely enough. So uh, if you actually Google Ask a Cycling Coach Stretching, there is a deep dive that Chad did on this. And he went into this whole depth about static versus um, I guess the opposite, uh, non-static stretching. I can't think of what the Dynamic. term is right now. Dynamic. 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 Yes. 
And he went through that and looked at all the different things. And there's a lot of conflicting evidence, honestly. The one thing that we can say is that stretching can make you feel good. And also it's a really good time to build that like proprioceptive feedback with your body where you kind of understand, oh, I kind of hit a barrier and I can't move on this side, but I can move on this side. So it's a really good opportunity for you to build awareness with it. It doesn't mean that, uh, and, and stretching before, you know, if you aren't warm, yes, stretching can be damaging to muscle tissue. So you don't want to do that. And so afterward you're probably warm. So it's probably a good time to do it, but it doesn't mean that it's going to raise your FTP by 10 Watts. I wish if stretching raised our FTP by 10 Watts, we'd all be like Gumby, but it's uh it's not something that you can tie in that directly. Um, okay. Uh, a couple other ones here. Um, this is a question actually that we've gotten by a number of people and we want to, it's tough once again, because of conflicting research, but, uh, when will you have a podcast to help diabetic cyclists, uh, with nutrition meds and performance? It's Ask something that doctor. we could look. Yeah, exactly. I don't want to cover it. It's too that like you can kill yeah. yourself. Like, yeah, we could look into it. We could find a lot of conflicting evidence and we could share something. But from me knowing numerous diabetics who are athletes, they, they, they're very different, each one of them, and they need different approaches for this as well. So it's, it's something that we, we don't try to be doctors here. We, we just yeah. try to help you get faster. I think one thing is true. That, so we're talking, go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, I think stating that it's possible to be at a high level with diabetes is probably the most I'd get into it. Cause there's, um, Amber might know the name of the team. There's that pro road team. That's only diabetics. Novo Nordisk. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. So it's like, yes. I think mm-hmm. just understanding that obviously everybody's different ask your doctor but it's not it's it's not a limiter like you can still get to where you want to be it's just your path may be different yeah Mm -hmm. that's what i was gonna say alex well nailed it (laughs) yeah um okay then another question here is i'm interested in how big of a time commitment are required by different sports so he says after something like triathlon what else comes next in terms of a high time commitment how do swimming and cycling compare to that this is like a and and he actually cites like a, a coach on a coach saying that like cyclists need an x amount to be able to be fast and this is like one of the things that i feel like we disprove really regularly with the successful athletes podcast in particular, like, um, look at people doing low volume training plans. So they're training four to five hours a week. And with four to five hours a week, they're getting significant FTP improvements and also doing really good things on the bike too. Like, um, in this case, it's the next week's podcast. Sorry to give it away. Spoiler alert here. Um, (laughs) but, uh, Doug Moore, the guy that's going to be on the podcast next week. It's awesome. Like he rode all the way North to South across the state of Utah in four days. So it was like, like really long days. I think like 170 miles each day. And he said he just felt awesomely prepared because it was just steady state work and all the low volume training, even though it wasn't a lot of hours, it prepared his energy systems for the demands that he was going to face on that day. So I'd really love it if we could somehow break that high that people have that like you have to hit x volume to get there you you prove that wrong all the time alex with with you too as a pro athlete right i feel like like one of the best cross-country racers we touch on this a lot and i feel like for some reason 20 hour weeks are just in people's heads um (sighs) even with covid and not racing i hit over 20 hours twice this year in a week one was because I took vacation and went specifically to Hawaii <laughs> to ride that much. And the other time was just because we didn't have racing. So it's like, there's definitely different ways to do it. But I mean, 
it's also goal specific and time you have specific. And I think that extra volume is kind of like those last, I wouldn't call them diminishing returns, but they're, they're percentages of percentages, you know, and it's like, it does give you a certain boost, but you know, maybe if you're, you're training for the tour, yeah, you have to put in 30 hour weeks because you're going to race that. But it's like for XC or crit racing, it's like, I think my average is like 12 hours a week. So I think like Mm -hmm. quality over quantity normally. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with that. Yeah. I think, um, when I was racing professionally, it was like the, the length of each individual ride was sort of, was tuned to what we would be racing. Right. So it didn't make sense for me to go and do a bunch of six and seven hour rides because none of my races are going to be any longer than three and a half to four hours. So I was training for specifically what I was going to race. So my weekly volume was really a byproduct of how specific my training was to what I was doing. And I, even in the off season, when I was really trying to lay a really good foundation with base training, I really wouldn't do much more than 25 to 30 hours a week. And that would not be a frequent occurrence. And I will say anecdotally that a lot of professional cyclists, men and women that I know who subscribe to this thought that I have to, I have to ride a ton of hours to be good when they retired and they actually lowered their volume, they got faster. Yeah. And a little, uh, kind of frustrating, but <laughs> trainer road plug. If you're, if you're on the trainer being efficient, like I'd say an hour on like trainer road is like an hour and a half of, you know, most outside rides, you know, like definitely right. Cause you, you spend so much time coasting, stopping at stop signs, stop lights, yep. reaccelerating out of turns. But if you're actually on the pedals that entire time, and that's something you can be more disciplined about outside, but it's really hard to replicate that the way that you can on the trainer. Yeah. I definitely yeah, blow through brake pads in the off season a whole lot faster than in season. <laughs> Pedaling downhill Same is here, a skill. Yeah. <laughs> Pedaling downhill and holding your brakes. Yeah. Amber, how uh, do you know though for like an Olympic, like at the very top level, Olympic swimmer? Do you know how many hours per week they're doing? It's an, it's yeah. way more than cycling, right? It's like forty hours of training a week, and that. Oh. So when I was in college, I was in a program, and and I was training with people who were winning Olympic gold medals at that time. So I can, I can speak to this from first experience, not being an Olympic medalist myself. Um, but it wasn't 40 hours in the pool. I mean, we, we probably spent 20 to 25 hours in the pool, but we spent a lot of time in the weight room, a lot of time doing dry land work. Um, it's a ton of volume in the pool and then a lot of supplemental work, um, you know, outside of the water. And the reason that that, that was really counterintuitive to me too, when I first got into cycling, cause I came from a swimming background where it was like, you have to train like berserk to race for, Oh, I don't know, less than a minute. <laughs> and then here I was in this sport where the races are multiple hours and I'm not training as much as I did in the pool. Like this was really weird. First Were of all, your hands work- always pruny. Sorry. I have to ask this question <laughs> that much time in the water. My yeah. gosh, that'd be t- actually, that's crazy. you adapt to it. So it actually got to a point after a while, like you're, you don't prune up the same way that you would if you weren't spending a lot of time in the water. It's weird. It's weird. Um, amazing, <laughs> but sorry I, yeah. for solving so, my personal curiosities here. <laughs> the podcast. Good. But yeah, in college I was training 40 hours a week, which made it really, really hard to keep up with schoolwork in the meantime. Um, and I think that the reason for that with swimming in particular is because technique is so important and you need that repetition to ingrain the technique and the proprioception that you need to have the, te- to, to have the level of technique that's going to give you the speed advantage in the water. And you really, honestly, you can't get enough of it. The limiter is 
um, doing too much and not being able to recover enough, right? So like you wanna do as much as you possibly can while maintaining a good work-rest recovery ratio. Um, and that's, that's, a, that's a fine line, but, but that technique component of swimming makes it unique in that you, you need a lot of work on that, yeah. that aspect. That was gonna be my question is if I've heard that the time in the pool is for muscle memory. Like just mm-hmm. yep. making it so it's second nature to be a speeding bullet. John? Yeah, and there there are really subtle excuse me, little subtle changes and manipulations that it takes a really long time to get uh, a handle on and, and to hone. And yeah, it's sure. it's a lot. <laughs> it's a lot. John Amber is gonna smoke us so hard in triathlon. So bad. <laughs> Honestly. <laughs> so bad. Like we just cause she's not a she keeps saying she's not a runner. Like I know on the bike and the TT bike too, she's been more time than any of us, probably all of us combined on the TT bike. Le- I, I know legitimately a pro cyclist. <laughs> I know yeah. but on the swim though, John, like I'm just thinking like for time, I was happy if I got like three to four hours a week swimming before. And Emma's like, yeah, like 25 ish. And she did that for years, uh, which is crazy. Uh, one, one week is like a couple months for me swimming. That's for, for Amber. And like I, the most, if you're, if you're placing bets, this is like the most obvious betting situation ever. Well, it's just the running thing. If Amber, go, like, I don't, how fast can you run a, how fast can you run a 5K or 10K? Do you know? I have no idea. And let me just say, I'm very aware that the run is really important in triathlon. And I don't think that you're weighting it appropriately in your analysis. I'm a really bad runner. Like, if it's a, really so, and if it's a sprint, you're probably going to beat us. But if it's something that it's like, really long like a marathon or a half uh, marathon that is where somebody can then catch up but sometimes you're just not enough time in a in a 5k the differences won't be that much and you won't drop off as much yeah. as you would in a marathon if you're not a runner like a marathon you might walk like yeah 15 miles and then it's a lot easier to catch but she is so fit like i everyone <laughs> don't follow the amber like oh i'm not a runner i'm just a pro athlete yeah. my entire life yeah, she's throwing oh, you off she's me. throwing you off this trail yeah like here. the she's throwing you off the set. uh <laughs> yeah don't don't have any don't don't believe it just okay. wait till I was marching by band. how much time she was winning like state championships <laughs> <laughs> by how much time do you think she will beat us in the swim alone Ooh. on a full distance race <laughs> oh full distance on me, 23 minutes and 17 minutes. seconds. <laughs> 23 minutes and 17. Not specific or anything. Alex has a spreadsheet. I like the out, prime numbers like, in there. <laughs> yeah. um, at least I, 15 I, minutes, if not more. I think Amber's going to be in the 50s for an Ironman swim, somewhere in there. And it's all going to depend. See, Amber's smart too, where you see this with pros who come back, is they just spend a little bit of time swimming and they're pretty fast. But she doesn't need to spend so much time where she goes from like a 58 to a 56. If she works on her weak sport, the uh, the run, the run relative, and then she might go from a a four hour marathon to a to a 3:35 or something. I mean that the splits I just said, Amber is going to be like one of the pro athletes. That's, that'd be a really fast one. But she, I'm just saying, she could take much more time off her run by spending time yeah. there than doing all these hours in the pool. So although I think a collegiate Amber would definitely be the winning female swimmer and beat a lot of pros up all the pros. Uh, it's, it, I don't think it makes sense for you, Amber, to put, to, to try to like win sure. the sprint swim. It doesn't, it, it doesn't matter. You can even, if you did an hour on the swim, you would be extremely fast for you. I mean, still, I mean, John, we're John, you're probably going to do one twenty. I'd like to do one. <laughs> That's what I'm thinking. I was going to yeah. ask, like, what would you put 
me compared to you even like how much time do you think i'll be behind you in this i've never seen you swim probably but you drown but you're not good if you get your it's you know what it is too with swimming is uh for people that are new sometimes they get the right coach and they get the right cue and they take minutes off their time like very quickly Mm. it's it's these little things that uh, like I used to, whenever I breathe, I'd put my legs sideways and I would like make this snow plow in the back. So I wouldn't, I'd like go to the edge and I would just like slow myself down, wedge in the water. Uh, I found out yeah. at the end of my career, but my career, so not a career. Uh, <laughs> illustrious. <laughs> illustrious career, world renowned career of one sub five hour, half hour man. But it, it uh, so it's hard to tell. That's what I'm going to say. But if you're faster mm. than me, I'm just going to be super frustrated. Because I know you're a faster runner than me, and you are just as fast or faster than me on time trialing, and so then you just beat me at every sport. Amber, can I sign you to a contract of exclusivity for you to be my coach? <laughs> That's actually not uh, just Amber. very smart, though, because Amber does not live here, and she needs to be on the deck, right? Uh, That's what I mean, though. Like it, it would involve it would involve travel. Yeah. That's for mm. sure. She's gonna fly out all the time. Yeah. yeah. I mean, of course, exclusive coaching contract. It needs to happen. So (laughs) I will make Amber. We will work endlessly on mountain bike skills. If you help me in the pool. That is a deal. That is a deal. Awesome. Good. (laughs) (laughs) Nate's the one that loses in all of this. He loses at Cape Epic. If Amber gets faster and he loses on the try side, if I get faster. He was trying to sign the paycheck run before April. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, seriously. Uh, Never mind, Nate, not exclusive. You have access to it too. (laughs) 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 All right, everybody. Thanks for joining us this week. And uh, for all of those in the United States and elsewhere, uh, happy Thanksgiving. It's a good time to be grateful for all the things that we have amidst a crazy year. Um, so a uh, good time for that, for sure. And I hope you have great things to be grateful for. Uh, also, please go to trainerroad.com slash podcast, insert the questions that you have into that field there, and then we'll read them and we'll be able to put them into a queue for next week. And on top of that, check out trainerroad.com to make you faster. Share this podcast with your friends, share Trainer Road with your friends. Uh, it'll help with that big motivation component we were talking about today. And with all that said, we'll talk to you next week. Thanks, everybody. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye, y'all.